Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everyone. Happy Saturday. Um... Here in Chicago, you know, we are in the middle of a mayoral campaign, but around the country, oh, I don't know, another week of breathless news about the next presidential race or the debt ceiling or the war in Ukraine, toxic train derailment for sure, pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training. And there was important economic news, inflation continues to ease corporate profits, remain high, and there's trouble brewing at the Federal Trade Commission. Okay, the what? (laughs) I, I know this is a little in the weeds for a lot of us, but I assure you that corporate titans around the country, um, to them, this is a very big deal. Look, since her confirmation as Joe Biden's pick to head the FTC in June of 2021, Linda Kahn has been doing battle with a system determined to maintain the status quo. From banning non-compete clauses, challenging corporate consolidations that lessen competition, uh, to sanctioning companies for price gouging, the FTC under Linda Lena Kahn has uh, started to do its job again. And for the first time, it's looking at the anti-competitive effects of platform-based business models. That's like Amazon and Facebook and Google. The results are exactly what you would expect. GOP appointees to the commission are loudly resigning in protest. Rupert Murdoch's New York Post calls Khan the most dangerous person in government for those of us who cherish free markets. Okay, well, that's a lot, but rhetoric, as we know, is part of politics. Responsible adults will stop and consider what's really going on. Google and Facebook have, after all, created, you know, wonderful companies, but information monopolies that have largely bankrupted small news organizations across America. Consolidations in freight rail have given such power to the remaining companies that they successfully fought against giving workers any paid sick leave. And and recently we've seen with disastrous results across the Ohio Valley, they've been able to fight the necessary safety upgrades. Corporate power has grown steadily for 50 years under the rhetorical banner of free markets. But even Adam Smith, the founder of economics as a science, he understood that markets aren't free if they're not competitive. Monopolies create what economists call rent-seeking behaviors. These behaviors are all about obtaining prices above the fair market price for goods and services. Consider cereal, a staple that has steeply risen in costs during this period of inflation. Let's walk down the aisle of the nearest grocery store and try to shop for a good price. Do you pick up grape nuts or great grains or shredded wheat or honey bunches of oats? Doesn't matter. They're all owned by the same company. So the competition between them isn't real. If you read the Wall Street Journal, you will learn that inflation is about money supply, fiscal giveaways, and rising wages. 
you will never read a story about the role of monopolies, anti-competitive practices, secret fees, or rent-seeking behaviors. So when the New York Post cries about wanting a free market, you should understand that to mean that, well, you should understand it like this. The, the, the schoolyard bully should be free to push the smaller kid off the slide and to charge everyone else their whole allowance for the right to climb the ladder. That's why Joe Biden's presidency is so meaningful. He's put together an administration that is finally fighting back against the bullies in order to level the playing field. Ms. Khan is corporate America's public enemy number one. And look, she uh, has earned it because she is fighting the bullies. But she's also of South Asian heritage. She's a she and she's young. Um, and she's not who they need her to be. Oh, the outrage. You can imagine. Look, last week, I predicted that President Biden's biggest legacy will be economic, wi widening participation in the miracle of American commerce, shrinking the gap between the wealthiest and the rest of us, and delivering the kind of broadly shared posterity that is only possible in a democracy where the rules are not rigged in favor of the few. We should thank Ms. Khan for the arrows she's taking to make that happen. So I know you thank you for your patience here. I know that um, talking about the Federal Trade Commission is not what most people sign on to the show for. We usually just focus on you know, sort of broader politics, but it's really important to get into the weeds a little. And you know, because you've heard me say this before, politics is not the same thing as governing, right? And the GOP is all about politics. They're less about governing at the national level. There are plenty about governing in the states, and we've learned what that governing means. But um, at the national level, it's Democrats who are governing. And this is one example of the enormous work that needs to be done to fight um, for an even playing field so that when you go to work and when you work hard, you know that you get a piece of the America that you're that you are creating. Again, I think we've talked about this before. You know, the economy, well, productivity roughly doubled between the end of uh, World War II and 1972. And uh, wages kept up with it. Wages almost doubled. Right. So, they, so as the country grew and prospered, working Americans shared in that prosperity. And then something happened after that. And from the mid 70s until today, the country is also once again almost doubled in productivity and wages have grown, you know, not 90 some percent as they did the first time that happened, but nine percent, nine. That vast gap is where um, uh, where all that wealth and all those productivity gains went to a few. Really a dangerous thing in a democracy. And that is one of the reasons why you have fertile ground for the Ron DeSantis's and Donald Trump's of the world, fertile ground for sowing anger and dissension. It's because people think the system's rigged. And you know what? It has been. But Joe Biden and the Democrats are fighting back. And we should see this for what it is, cheer them on, and help them be successful. 
All right. You know, um, I have a great show for you today. And my first guest is an economist. So we're going to stay on this topic before we turn to others. I think I'm going to take an early um, first break. And then um, when we come back, I'm going to be joined by Dean Baker and we will have this conversation in full. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody. Dean Baker. Dean Baker founded the Center for Economic and Policy Research in just before the millennium. Um, the organization promotes democratic debate on economic and social issues that affect our lives. Uh, he's a prolific writer and author of many books and studies. And from time to time, um, I'm lucky enough, and we're all lucky enough that he joins us here to help us understand what's going on. Hello, Dean. Hi, Edward. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah, so um, I've done something that I probably shouldn't have done. I've made a prediction. And I know that's it's just a terrible idea, but I couldn't help myself. And the prediction was that, you know, a generation from now, people are going to look back and say that Joe Biden's most important contributions were economic, the things he did to make the economy work for ordinary Americans, antitrust, some of the regulatory work, more tax fairness, maybe uh, some of the stuff on non-competes. What do you think? Well, I sure hope so. He's stuck his foot into this. He's, you know, it's the deep water here, and he's stuck, sticking his foot in, and he's made a lot of headway, and I think it remains to be seen how far he can go. Obviously, he wants to do more. Republicans control Congress. That makes it hard. They want to roll everything back. I think he'll be, well, I should say, I think he will resist that. Will he be completely successful? We'll have to see. But he's really made a lot of big steps. You mentioned uh, bringing back antitrust. I mean, uh, I think people sometimes overplay how much we've had monopolization. But nonetheless, we've had a lot. It comes out of people's pockets. It's made a lot of sectors much less competitive, to my view, hurt productivity, hurt innovation. And he's brought in Lena Khan as head of the Federal Trade Commission, and she's uh, one of the leading scholars on academic, uh, on antitrust and takes it very seriously. And she's made some big moves. And you mentioned the non-competes. This is, you know, I think tremendously important and just almost painfully um, simple or corrupt, whatever the term you want to use. Uh, people may not be familiar. The idea of a non-compete agreement is we have tens of millions of workers, who estimate as much as 30% of the workforce now, has to sign non-compete agreements, which means that if they leave their current employer, they can't work in the same industry. And there's, you know, usually for two years, I mean, that's a standard, it could be more, but usually that's a standard. And, you know, there's a certain logic in some cases, you know, if I, I'm working for a tech company and we're designing new software, new electric cars or whatever, they don't want me to just take the what we've been working on and go to another company. There's issues there, but that's like at least a principle. But 30% of the workforce, this is that you have people who have worked at fast food restaurants that can't quit their job and work at another fast food restaurant. I mean, it sounds nuts, but literally there are companies that have done that. Now, could they enforce them? Who the hell knows? But that has to intimidate a worker. So they want to outlaw non-competes. And that, you know, that's a simple thing. It's a great thing. We'll see if they can get through it because it's, you know, it's by executive order. It's, uh, well, the FTC, I should say, it's not directly executive order. Um, but that will matter. So that's a huge thing. The other, well, there's other big things, but bringing back the IRS as an enforcement mechanism, I mean, just, you know, we, we know hundreds of billions of dollars are not being paid in taxes that people owe. And to my view, we could all argue over the tax code, but the idea that 
oh, I don't feel like paying my taxes. I shouldn't have to. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's well, do you, nuts. Do you let me interrupt for one second there? Because we need to be clear with people who's doing that. Because no guy whose taxes are paid through payroll deduction by his company, the, the bit that comes out of your paycheck every week, that's not the guy who's not paying his taxes. Yeah, it's overwhelmingly higher income people. The vast majority of us have the vast majority of our taxes taken directly out of our paychecks. So we don't have the option not to pay them. You know, if I don't feel like right. paying my taxes, uh, they, they already have my money. You know, I, you know so, so, so we, we just want the staff to pay us back when we get our refunds. Yeah, yeah. So, and actually, it's a big thing, too, because a lot of people have complained rightly that uh, they have a question. I remember a couple of years ago, I don't know how long it took me to finally get someone to answer what should have been a relatively simple question. I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, how to do my taxes. I'm not trying to rip them off yeah. or anything. What's the rule? So, yeah, so a lot of it is just staffing up the IRS so that people who have issues could, could have them dealt with. But, yeah, I mean, it's just absurd. And, again, we have studies on this. It's not really places from, like, the Government Accountability Office, Congressional Budget Office. And they all show the same thing. We spend a dollar on enforcement. We're going to get four or five, maybe as much as $10 back in higher taxes. So mm-hmm. the Republicans, mm-hmm. their they're, they're big cost-saving thing is they don't want to pay for having more people at the IRS. And, of course, that costs us money. You know, their friends won't pay, have to pay their taxes. So. That's a big thing. Um, the the move to clean energy. This you can't possibly give Biden enough credit for this because the the infrastructure act was a huge start, but then the inflation reduction act, the climate measures in there, it was an earthquake. All everyone is on board of clean energy now. The auto industry is on board. Uh, I even saw Koch Industries, you know, the big Republican funders, they're now supporting clean energy. They're, they're I shouldn't say supporting. They're looking to make money on clean energy, battery plants and solar, you're not going to be able to reverse that. And that's obviously hugely important. And we would like and, it to go and, faster. We should all and, go ahead. And the way they the way they did that was to change the economic incentives. They didn't do it by banning uh, fossil fuels. They did it by tax credits and purchasing incentives. So they did it by by changing the structure of the economy a little bit so that it became more profitable to go green. That's exactly right. And that's, you know, that is what we, uh, I mean, we could yell at Exxon all we want. And yeah, I mean, they've done horrible things. I mean, not just, you know, polluting the air directly with uh, selling us oil, but we know they concealed evidence. They knew about global warming decades ago, and they did everything they could to try and uh, hide that from the public to deny it. And so, but anyhow, but the bottom line is companies are there to make money, and, and that shouldn't surprise us. And if they're making money by producing clean energy, if they're making money by selling electric cars, they're going to do it, and they're going to try to get every cent they can out of it, which means they're going to want more subsidies. They're going to they're going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So that's why it was so big. So we now, the, the door's been opened. It can't be shut. You know, we're going to see a clean energy transition. And again, we sure all want to go faster than it's going, but it's not going to be stoppable. So I I think those are huge accomplishments. And I'm hoping that we're seeing the beginning of a change from an economy that primarily rewards investors to one where the benefits of growth are more widely shared as they were before the 1970s. 
Yeah, well, a lot still up for grabs on that one, but we have seen some real progress. And again, I, I, I'm just amazed uh, with so much of the reporting that, oh, the economy's bad. The Democrats, this is going back before the election, Democrats don't want to talk about the economy. Well, why shouldn't they want to talk about the economy? I mean, we're at the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. Last I heard, you know, I've had people yell at me, oh, um, you know, people don't care about that. That's just, a, you know, you're an academic. And I don't know. Maybe I'm out to lunch, but I sort of think working people care about having jobs. You know, that that seeing, you know, maybe I'm on the wrong planet, but that seems to me it matters. You know, and I do know people that work for a living, myself being one of them. The, yep. the, the idea that people care about having jobs and, and part of that story in a tight labor market, you can quit a bad job. And we're seeing people do that. They're voting with their feet. They're saying my boss is a jerk. There are not enough opportunities. I don't get paid enough. They go across the street and get a better job. And, and, and we're seeing that. So these are big things. And, and of course, they're not going to happen without a fight. I, I think about, you know, um, what pharma is doing on drug prices. I mean, I, 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 I met a pharma exec, oh, I don't know, during the Super Bowl. And he seemed like the nicest guy in the world. But what he said to me is pharma's going to stop looking for drugs for seniors because the Inflation Reduction Act means that they're not as valuable as other drugs anymore because, you know, they, they can't charge whatever they want. I thought that was an interesting and stunning admission. Well, it doesn't surprise me. They're, I mean, I've followed the industry. I'm not going to say I'm the greatest expert in the world, but I have followed the industry closely for some time. And there's a lot of things there that kind of make you want to pull your hair out or what, in my case, what do you have left of it? But the, the they wouldn't put in drugs for senior. I mean, one of the things, and no pharma person would argue on this, they don't look for cures in general. They want treatments. So they suppose that they thought they could develop a cure for a particular type of cancer. They're not going to spend a lot of money doing that because that, that'll be one time. They'll take the pill you know, for a month, three months, whatever it might be, and then you're, you're, you're done with them. On the other hand, if they he have said, treatment, he said that too. you for, he, he yeah, said that yeah, too. Well, Come back every month yeah. for a shot. That's what we want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that, that is how they're thinking. And from a public health perspective, obviously – if it's possible to develop a treatment, now it's not like we could just snap our fingers and go, I mean, we could get a cure for this, but sometimes you can. Hepatitis C, we had uh, Sylvania, a great breakthrough drug that it actually cures hepatitis C. It's a three-month course of treatment, and the vast mm-hmm. majority of people were cured. This is a debilitating, sometimes fatal disease, and now you could cure it. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic thing. So where you could do things like that, of course, we should focus our research I mean, this is one of the things I actually have been uh, talking. Uh, you might have heard of these two doctors, Dr. Uh, uh, Peter Hotez and Elena Batares. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. researchers at the University of uh, uh, Baylor University and Texas Children's Hospital. They developed an open source vaccine to, for COVID. And it's, it's been widely distributed in, in India and also Indonesia, over 100 million people have gotten it. I don't know what the current number is, but it's like, so, so in other words, a lot of people have gotten it. But it's not approved in the U.S., and it would it would cost around $10 million to do a trial of it. And I've been trying to push people I know to see if, you know, the, the, the uh, I guess the source would be, well, both there's money left over in Operation Warp Speed, uh, Trump's uh, funding for, for research on uh, treating COVID, uh, vaccines and treating COVID, but also the National Institutes of Health has a budget of over 50 billion a year. So we're talking about 10 million and a budget of 50 million. That's, 
you know, uh, one fifth of uh, one five hundredth of one percent. Um, so so in principle, they could, they should be able to get that money. And the reason why I think that's just so incredibly important is if they got that vaccine approved by the Food and Drug Administration, it would cost maybe five dollars a shot, maybe less. It costs less than two dollars in India. So sell for somewhat more here. But that compares to Moderna and, and Pfizer are charging over $100 a shot for their vaccines. Uh, Moderna just said they'd make it free for the uninsured. But for uh, people, the government's paying for it or your insurer's paying for it, they're paying Pfizer, I mean, Moderna over $100 per shot. Mm-hmm. So if we could instead get a vaccine that's probably just as good, I mean, you know, maybe it'll not be quite as good. It could be better in some ways. I, not worth getting into this. But in any case, uh, an effective vaccine for $5 rather than 100 110 120 that's a, quite a difference. And I'd love to see that both because obviously it would save a lot of money. You know, it might also get some people vaccine hesitant because there's some concern among people among the, about the mRNA vaccines that don't apply to vaccines more generally. So that would be a fantastic thing in terms of COVID. But it would also set a fantastic example because the bottom line is, we don't have to rely on the drug companies to do the research. We pay for research up front. So if if, if the guy you met from pharma is saying, oh, we're not interested in researching drugs for seniors, I'd love to be able to say, well, you do what you guys want. What we're going to do is we're going to research drugs for seniors. And those are going to be available as cheap generics because we paid for the research already. You've argued a lot about changing the way we do patent protection. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, it's it's a huge, huge issue. It's an issue for health, and it's it's a huge uh, economic issue. You know, in terms of the health, you know, issues we were just talking about, that they're going to pursue the most profitable path. Hardly a secret. So, if they think there there's a route maybe to get a cure, but that's going to be much less profitable than developing a treatment where you have to get the shot every week, they're going to go for the treatment. We don't want that, but that's what they want. Um, they also are often dishonest about what they're. What, how effective, how safe their, their drugs are. And there, there's no shortage of examples. The, uh, recently, there was a, um Alzheimer's drug that they were trying to get the FDA approved, and they wanted uh, to, to charge 55000 a year for, for, for the drug. Now, the FDA ultimately gave it a very limited approval, but it was a big contentious issue, and the research on it showed it was, at best, marginally effective. So why on earth would you want this drug to be widely available, and it had harmful side effects, too. So it's not just, oh, well, no harm. No, there actually were harmful side effects. But if you didn't have the patent monopolies, they wouldn't have the incentive. I mean, I thought that everyone was always going to be honest everywhere, but you put a lot of money on the table, you're giving people a big incentive to both lie about the safety and effectiveness of their drugs and to push them as widely as possible. Opioids is is just the most obvious example. They made a lot of money on those because those were patent-protected drugs. Yeah. Hey, um, we've hit the bottom of the hour. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, Dean Baker and I are going to continue this conversation on the economy. Stay with us. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Welcome back. I'm talking to Dean Baker, founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Dean, at the top of the show, I, I talked a little bit about the FTC and Lena Khan and her work and the uh, incoming that she's taking from the GOP about that work. And then you mentioned it briefly when we were talking earlier. And I think maybe, you know, I, I know the FTC is a bit, uh, bit 
sort of wonky subject for people, but I think it's worth talking about because it has such interesting regulatory potential. And her work is so much of a departure from the past. Do you want to just take a minute and tell people about her and the work that, that she's trying to do and, and maybe even um, the sort of new work on platform monopolies? Yeah, so we the, the Federal Trade Commission, I'm not sure if it's exclusive responsibility, but I, I always think of it as main responsibility is to ensure that we have competition throughout the economy. And most importantly, that's antitrust, that, that we prevent companies from getting monopolies. And it had been effective in doing this, I would say, through most of the three decades or so following World War II when we did have um, – broadly shared prosperity. I caught a little bit of what you were saying uh, before I came on. So we saw the economy growing well, and that was benefiting pretty much everyone, that workers up and down the income ladder were seeing wage gains. Since 1980, that, of course, hasn't been true. Part of that story, I don't think it's the main part of the story, but I think part of that story has been that basically we shut down antitrust. And that's unfortunately been to, to a substantial extent the bipartisan consensus that um, we've seen both Democratic, really beginning with Carter, actually, uh, Democratic and Republican administrations being unconcerned about growing consolidation in, in a number of major sectors. So you're mentioning tech. We certainly see that very clearly in tech where you have um, you're talking about platforms. So obvious platforms, Google. Um, they have like 90%. I'd have to look at the exact number, but some incredibly large percentage of search business. Um, Microsoft, of course, with its operating system, its Windows operating system. Uh, Apple with its uh, its uh, iPhones. Uh, so you have situations where you have companies that have enormous market power, and naturally they exploit that. I mean, again, they're in business to make a profit. So then it's not a question I'm saying they're bad guys or anything. It's it, it, That's what they're there for. They're, if they could get a monopoly or near monopoly, as these companies have in major areas of the economy, they're going to exploit that. And what that means is higher prices and often less innovation. And that that's a serious problem. And there was a, a book done a few years ago, it kind of slipping my... my uh, memory now. He said, oh, it doesn't matter where he's at. But anyhow, he, he, he was just comparing what we pay for a number of services for, say, uh, internet service, uh, for um, wireless telephone service, a number of other services where we don't have effective either regulation or antitrust policy with what they pay in Europe. And it ends up being quite a bit different. We pay like twice as much for our internet, for, you know, for our telephones. And that that's a lot of money out of people's pocket over the course of a year. So it, it has a big impact. And again, earlier we were talking about the, the non-compete agreements. Just amazing. And this is something that I had no idea until, I don't know, it was about 12, 15 years ago. I saw some work done. I mean, I knew of their existence, but I had no idea that they'd become so widespread. And you know, that that fact is it was just amazing to me. And they, they really have no business. I mean, it's like your employer could say, "Oh, you can't go work for someone else." Uh, it's kind of kind of incredible. I mean, that's not a market economy as we would ordinarily think of it. So it's been great to see Lena Khan there. She's as said, she's a, an outstanding academic, or had been an outstanding academic. She's written a lot of really past breaking work on uh, antitrust, particularly in the area of platforms. <laughs> 
and mm-hmm. he's putting that into practice at the FTC. So Biden deserves tremendous credit for having the courage to pick her and to stand behind her. And yeah, the Republicans are all yelling and screaming, but it's not, <laughs> I always love this. And they go, Oh, do you believe in markets? Yeah, I believe in markets. Do you believe in markets? You know, or do you want a single company to control the whole industry? And that's not capitalism. So I think she's, you know, she's really done it well. We'll see how much she's able to get away with, but she's doing a great job. I'll just put it that way. Yep, yep, yep. I think so too. So I'm, I'm but, but then you're the expert, so I'm glad to hear it from you. Um, there are other things that our government does sort of weirdly that have uh, incredible costs for the rest of us. And here, I, I, you know, I take it so much for granted that I don't even notice, but I had someone here from another country and they said to me, they watched TV. I don't remember why they were watching TV in a hotel room. And they said, is America the sickest, like the most, the, we have the worst health of any place on the planet? Because all I saw were ads for drugs. And they're like, no drug ads where I come from. They were this was somebody from England. And, you know, I just said, well, yeah, the Supreme Court said that's free speech. We're not allowed to do anything about it. But it costs a fortune to run those ads. Fortune that that people pay when they buy a pill. Yeah, this gets again. You know, uh, I might sound obsessed with it, but you know, the patent monopolies with prescription drugs. We pay. We're going to spend over five hundred fifty billion dollars this year, and I know that doesn't mean anything to people because it's just a really big number. I harangue reporters on that endlessly. So let me make it very concrete: five hundred fifty billion dollars. It's about three thousand dollars for every family in the country. And if we snapped our fingers and we said, okay, getting rid of patent monopolies, there's other similar protections, but we'll get rid of them all, we'd almost certainly pay less than $100 billion. Okay, so we'd have savings of around $2,000 for every family in the country. That's real money. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a really big deal. So that's enormous savings. But then on top of that, this doesn't – I see the drug ad. You can't turn it on television for more than a minute and not see a drug ad. Okay, what what possible use is that? So I'm seeing a drug ad, and I'm I'm probably more – you know, because I do read a lot. I have friends who are, you know, somewhat science, you know, experts on science. So I'm probably more familiar. I'm not making a great boast, but I'm probably more familiar than most people. I'll just say that, you know, about the uh, science behind this and medical issues. But I, I can't tell. Is this a good arthritis drug for? I don't have arthritis, thankfully. But I mean, if I had arthritis, is this a good drug? I don't know. You know, in fact, is almost no one who's going to see that ad is going to know. So what they're hoping is that someone's going to go, "Oh, I saw this and that," and they'll ring their doctor, and the doctor will go, "All right, well, if you want it, but, you know, whatever." Um, it, it's not a path for good medicine. I mean, we want our doctors to know about the available drugs, but advertising to their patients so that then they'll they'll go harangue them about it and doctor wants to keep their patients happy. Okay, if you want to try it, sure. Um, that's not a way for good medicine. So there's so much about this system that is just, you know, really, really geared towards not giving us good health care. And we pay twice as much. I mean, that's the other thing that's infuriating. If we pay twice as much and we all could say, oh, we're healthier, we're living longer. Okay, you know, we all value health. And if that were the case, you could say, okay, fair enough. That's a reasonable deal. But we pay twice as much and we have worse health. So it really is a horrible system. All right. Let me get your thoughts on something else. Um, And I don't know what to call it except cruelty as an economic policy. And here I'm thinking about the every few years and we're in it again right now, one of these cycles 
where what the GOP plans to do, because I think it'll save the budget and it's good economic policy, is to cut food stamps as if food stamps were a giant program, right? As if the beneficiaries weren't actually the ag businesses rather than the individuals who are getting a little assistance. But um, they think that cutting it off you know, will somehow be really helpful to the economy, will change how people, you know, will incent people to work harder and will save us a bunch of money. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, a lot of thoughts. I, I mean, first off, I, I get furious at the media for the way they deal with this. I just saw there was a big piece on Washington Post. I think it was yesterday. It could have been Thursday, but it doesn't matter. They had talked about Republican plans in this respect. And so we spent $119 billion last year on food stamps. And I looked at that and I go, okay, I'm an economist. I follow the budget. I have a pretty good idea what $119 billion is. Almost no one else who reads that has any idea. Well, so, compared to the number you just gave me on drugs. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's it's about a quarter of what we'll spend on prescription drugs this year. In fact, less than a quarter. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so uh, we can compare it to the whole budget. It's it's it's, uh, And I did do this because I wrote a little blog post. I was 1.9% of the whole budget. I'll, I'll have to admit, I didn't I didn't know offhand it was 1.9. I might have guessed two. But, you know, but, but you know, I, I did say I, I, this is my profession. Rounding error, right? 1.9 to yeah, two. But, but, you did good. Yeah, but most... But most people, they'll see $119 billion and they go, wow, that's a lot of money. That's where all my tax dollars go. And I just don't understand, and I've raised this, I don't know how many times with the reporters, why can't you just write down 1.9% of the budget? It's You don't have the room. Yeah. You know, four yeah, we have the same thing with foreign policy spending, you know, with foreign aid yeah. and things like that. Any right. little bit of the budget it, it, is considered, it, yeah. it can be a, yeah. Yeah, because people don't know these numbers, and I don't blame people. They have jobs, you know, so so they don't know these numbers. So they hear 119 billion, they go, "Oh my God, that's where all my tax dollars are going." These people gain the food stamps, you know. So and, and again, I've seen polling data, so it's not just my speculation. That there's been any number of studies done that people will say 25 percent of the budget goes to food stamps, you know, things like that, and and it's absolutely nuts. Why do they do that? Because they see a really big number. It is really big. Where none of us are going to see. Assuming Elon Musk isn't listening, none of us are going to see. 119 billion. So yeah, it's a really big number. Um, so yeah, part of that, the media, if they just make a point of putting this in a context so people would know, okay, you know, you could like it or not like it, but understand we could have big cuts to it and it barely affects the budget story. The other part though is there's actually at this point a lot of research. There's actually a paper recently published in the America Economic Review, which is considered the most prestigious economics journal. doesn't mean it's right, but, you know, for whatever it's worth, it's considered a prestigious journal that looked at the impact of of work requirements on food stamps. And what they found is it had no impact on work. So the Republicans, there already are a lot of work requirements in place, just to be clear, but the Republicans want stronger work requirements. They're saying, oh, we don't want people just sitting around. We want to make them work for their food stamps. Well, the evidence is it doesn't affect work at all. What it does do is it gets people off food stamps. So you have a lot of people that, for whatever reason, they don't want to deal with the paperwork. Maybe they're just mistakes. We've all had that. You know, you get a mistake on your bill and, you know, you try to get it fixed and maybe you do, maybe you don't. Well, what happens with a lot of people getting food stamps, of course, a lot of people don't feel good about getting food stamps. So they get turned down. They might have met the work requirement, but they told mm-hmm. them that uh, they, they didn't do it. So, you know, I, I say this a little bit from direct experience. My mother for years worked in the Illinois Department of Public Aid. 
And she would recount that. She said whenever there were efforts to tighten up the restrictions on getting public aid, that almost invariably the people people that were cut off were people who should get it but felt bad about it. They didn't fill out a form right or something like that. There were people that she was pretty confident. I mean, she doesn't know for sure. Pretty confident were frauds, that they put down phony information. Those people continued to get it because they know the game. So so it, what you do when you put in a work requirement for food stamps one, you're not going to get additional work. Two, yeah, you will knock some people off food stamps, but probably for the most part, people should actually be getting them. So it's well, not- it, most of the recipients of food stamps are people who are working. They just are working in jobs that barely pay, that, do, that don't pay enough for them to support a family. So that's right. Um, the overwhelming majority are already working. I, I don't have already working. Fingertips, but yeah, it's, it's right, the already working. majority. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so the idea of people sitting around, not, not that you could support yourself on food stamps, <laughs> but you know, right. the idea of if you want the food stamps program to go away, raise minimum wages. Yeah. And, and, yeah, then, you no, won't, and right. then you won't need food stamps at all. That's right. I mean, I, I did a short paper a little while back. The minimum wage had kept pace with productivity growth since the, it peaked in the 1960s, and it had kept pace with productivity growth from when it was started in 38 until 68. So that shouldn't be a crazy mm-hmm. idea. We actually did it for three decades. So if it had continued to do that, it'd be around $25 an hour today. So, and just to be clear, I'm not suggesting raising it to, I mean, we'd have to make a lot of other changes in the economy, but just if we imagined we had a $25 an hour minimum wage, yeah, people wouldn't be getting food stamps. They would have enough money from their job that they could support themselves, support their kids. Um, so that's why we have food stamps. Yeah. All right. One, one other topic I'm sort of interested in. Um, this week has also had a sort of new warnings about budget deficits. And I can't tell whether these warnings are meant to be alarmist or they're serious. But, you know, there's talk about, um, well, we, now we've looked at the bills that were passed in the 117th Congress. And, when you, and we now need to rethink them because interest rates have gone up. And so we're going to blow a huge, once again, we're going to blow the deficit way up. And I'm wondering if you've had a chance to see any of that and thought about it. Oh, sure. This is 100% political. I mean, uh, there, there is a little bit of a valid point that we're looking at higher deficits as we go out far into the future. But none of that is new. So if we go, why is this a big issue now? And uh, people pointed to new reports, uh, new projections from the Congressional Budget Office. Well, we had those projections last year. They aren't very different. Um, and the bills that were passed in, in, in the last Congress, they were paid for. So the Inflation Reduction Act, that's paid for. They're going to mm-hmm. get enough revenue from, from uh, increased IRS enforcement. They have the tax on uh, share buybacks. There are a couple other things in there that raise, oh, they'll be paying out less money to drug companies. That's paid for. So that didn't make the deficit worse. So the idea that we've had some explosion in the deficit because the last Congress was profligate, that, that there's zero to that. So we're looking at numbers that are not very different from the numbers we're looking at last year. The reason why they're getting so much play is basically because you have a Republican House of Representatives that want to make it a big issue. So it's not that the facts about the world have changed. It's simply the politics around them. And so that so that's the real story here. Well, so let's talk about those facts. So the 117th Congress, the one that did the Inflation Reduction Act, that did the Infrastructure Act, all that stuff, they passed more impactful legislation 
than any Congress since the 1960s, and all of it was paid for. So the deficit that we're facing, like the biggest increase in the deficit that I can recall was, let's see, uh, during the Trump presidency. And there were tax cuts. I mean, I, you can't, like if the Democrats pass something and pay for it, and Republicans spend money but don't pay for it, isn't it kind of clear where the deficits are coming from? Yeah, and it's it's just incredible hypocrisy. I mean, seeing politicians are. I'm not, I'm not trying to wind you up here, but. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, you know, it's just incredible hypocrisy for the Republicans to get holier than thou about deficits. Obviously, they don't care about deficits. They want to cut spending they don't like, so they're not out there cutting the military. What they want to do is they want to cut Social Security, want to cut Medicare. They all got really upset when uh, President Biden said that in the State of the Union. Well, where is he getting that from? He's looking at their documents. Rick Scott, as head of the Republican Campaign Committee, Senate Campaign Committee, it was his plan. So it's not like he's found some some crazy nut somewhere who was claiming to be a a senator, senior senator from Florida, uh, who's head of their their campaign committee, and he's putting out this plan. I mean, there's others, plenty of other Republicans have endorsed similar proposals. So Biden was not making things up out of thin air. He was referring to what the Republicans themselves have said they wanted to do. Yeah, he backed them off, and so now they don't want to do that. Now they don't know what they want to do. So. Uh, I don't know where we go with uh, the debt ceiling. The, the Republicans are in a political bind because they said they won't raise it unless they cut stuff, but they haven't put on the table anything they really want to cut anymore. Yeah, and, you know, of course, they're getting very upset with Biden saying, oh, he has to propose cuts. I mean, whoever, you know, what sort of negotiation is this? They want Biden to go in there, and, you know, come in there with all these concessions, and then they'll respond, like, why on earth would he do that? I mean, you know, you could have a discussion on the budget, um, but, you know, that has to begin. Biden already, he's putting his budget, he'll propose his budget, I guess, next week. I don't know the exact timeline. Mm-hmm. We'll have a new mm-hmm. budget from him very shortly. So he'll have his proposal on the table, and they could, they're, of course, welcome to say what they don't like there. But he's not, uh, he's not hiding anything. He's going to put his proposal on the table, and you know it's incumbent on them, insofar as they don't like it, to say what they don't like and what their alternatives are. So, Dean, if we, I, I kind of think the, that the, the, the tilting of the economy that happened, partly because of monopolies, partly because of the way we did globalization partly because of uh, changes in our politics in the last 40 years, the stuff that's widened the gap between the very, very wealthy and the rest of us, and that's made working people feel like they're working hard, but they're not getting ahead. Um, And I feel like that's been fertile ground for some of the political um, uh, mischief that's gone on in America. What are the things that we should be thinking about doing that will continue to, I mean, we talked at the beginning about little ones and not so little ones that the FTC is doing and that Joe Biden has begun to do. But if you could take another two or three big steps towards um, an economy that was more inclusive and where benefits that, I mean, like you, I'm a capitalist. I mean, I believe that we sh- that it's a great, interesting, powerful system, but it needs to be fair, and the people who create all this value need to share in it. How, what are the next round of changes that we should be thinking about? 
Well, I'd certainly highlight patent copyright monopolies because so much money, people really, when I'm saying people, I mean like economist people, so they're not, not just randomly grabbing a person off a bus. So they, they don't realize how much money is at stake. I, I focus on prescription drugs just because that's also people's health and something people see. But throughout the economy, a huge amount of money is redistributed upwards. I always joke that uh, Bill Gates would still be working for a living if the government didn't arrest people or threaten to arrest people who made copies of Microsoft software without his permission. That's a copyright monopoly. So we just redistribute an enormous amount of money upwards to that route. Another issue that, again, I think doesn't get anywhere near the attention it deserves, CEO pay, and it's not just the CEO. So we hear stories, CEOs getting 20, 30, 40 million, sometimes even more. Um, Tim Cook at Apple, I think it's 100 million a year, something close to that. So that's not just the market. We have an incredibly corrupt corporate governance structure. There, there was a great study done a couple of years ago where they asked directors and corporate boards, how do they see their job? And almost none of them saw their job as reigning in CEO pay. They thought their job was to serve top management. My reason for saying that is the story, the, the classic textbook story is supposed to be that CEO pay is held in check by the shareholders. So we all know that a typical worker, an auto worker's pay is held in check by their supervisor. They're told, you know, we're, we want to pay these people as little as possible. We, we all understand that. But you get to the top, well, how is their pay held in check? Well, the shareholders, well, it turns out the shareholders don't because the directors who are supposed to represent the shareholders think they're there to serve top management. Now, I mentioned that with CEOs. It's not just the $30 million. I have a friend I said this is, ah, 500 CEOs before you, what's the big deal? Not just the CEO. If the CEO is getting $30 million, the chief financial officer is getting $12, 15000000 million, the other top executives are getting 8 or 10 the third tier are getting 2 or 3 well, by an old economic maxim, the more money goes to the top, the less is left for everyone else. So if we go back to the good old days, go back 40, 50 years, CEOs got paid 20, 30 times the pay of an ordinary worker. It'd be about 2 million or 3 million a year. Imagine what the world would look like if the CEO of a major company, a Microsoft, a Google was getting 3 million a year. And then you go down a couple layer, layers, they're getting, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand, pretty good pay. But much less than what they're getting today. That would mean a you lot could live on three million a year, couldn't you, Dean? You could make ends meet, couldn't you? Yeah, you know, some cuts, you know, some cuts here and there. So anyhow, I think that's an incredibly important area that we we've just allowed an incredible corruption in the corporate governance structure that's allowed a ridiculous amount of money to go to the very top. Um, so, yeah. so those are two big areas. Um, you know, we've talked about taxes. I'd love to see just collect the taxes that we're supposed to collect. You know, one of the things I really appreciate in the, the Inflation Reduction Act, taxing share buybacks. Not that I'm the biggest opponent of share buybacks. Other people, I think, have stronger views on that than I do. But the point is, we see share buybacks. So what I always said is, let's tax what we see. Tax the returns to shareholders, the buybacks, the dividends, the increase in stock price. Tax that at the corporate level rather than corporate profits, because we don't see corporate profits. Corporate accountants tell us what corporate profits are. Huge amount mm -hmm. of gaming there. So, mm -hmm. so those are some things that could be done. They're very concrete, and uh, you know, I think they're doable, doable tasks in the sense that you, know, you and I could sit down. Here's how we would do it. Now, can you get that done politically? Big lifts. Everything's right. a big lift. But can, well, but can take the first one a little longer, Dean, because the first one, you know, the companies always say, Look, if we can't make a profit, we can't innovate because it takes costs so much money to bring a new drug to market. Why would we invest, put at risk all that money if we can't expect a return? How do you how do you 
answer that. Yeah, well, I don't want them to do it. I want the government to pay for the research up front. So, and we could pay corporations to do that. We've done that. We paid Moderna to develop the vaccine. Now, as it turned out, yep. we both paid them to develop the vaccine, and we gave them control over it. Uh, to my view, you go, let's pay them once, not twice. Right. So, so they got fee-for-service, and then they got and, – and normally when, when, they, when, when I'm hired to do a fee-for-service project, the guys who pay me own it, not the other way around. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we could do that, but, you know, let's – I'd say let's do that. But then say, no, it's in the public domain. You got paid already. So now whoever can produce the vaccine at the lowest cost, if you can produce it at the lowest cost, wonderful. But, you know, whoever can produce it at the lowest cost is going to produce it. And that that would be a hell of a lot cheaper than what we're paying Moderna. And, again, we just took away their incentive to lie about it because they got their money. So they have no reason if there's some problem with the vaccine, some people have heart conditions. I'm not saying there is, just to be clear. But, you know, let's say there's some people that shouldn't take the vaccine. They have no reason not to say that because they, they're not going to get any extra money if they lie about it. So, yeah, yeah. so we, it both be much cheaper and we take away the, this incentive for corruption. Dean, this is a fascinating conversation. And um, I do think the Biden administration is the first one in a long time to even attempt to uh, uh, level the playing field. And, um, let more people share in America's growth. I think it's enormously important. But you point out it's a big, big job that well, it's going to take a long time. If um, yeah, people want to read your work, where do they find it? Politician. it uh, net. So I have a blog, Beat the Press, they could find there. But really all my work gets posted at net. All right, everybody, you heard that, CEPR.net, to follow Dean Baker's work. Um, really interesting conversation, Dean. It's always fun to catch up. Good talking again. Thanks for having me on. Yep, you bet. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a break for the news. Uh, and when we come back, <laughs> let's take a trip to sunny Florida together. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everybody. A little after two here in the chilly upper Midwest. Um, upper Midwest. So let's talk about a warmer place. I'm joined now by Mitch Perry, who has covered politics and government in Florida for more than two decades. He was one of the founding reporters at the Florida Phoenix, which is a nonprofit newsroom um, that's part of the state's newsroom effort around the country. And we've previously talked about that here on this show. Mitch, uh, welcome. Hey, Edward, good, good afternoon. So um, your governor, Ron DeSantis, is coming up here to my state, Illinois, to keynote a, a meeting with the Fraternal Order of Police. The Fraternal Order of Police is a very controversial union up here um, uh, that, you know, sent some of its members to the January 6th rally a few years ago in D.C. Um, it's gotten embroiled in our mayor's race in, you know, highly controversial ways. But your governor wants to come up and have a chat. So I thought maybe it would be helpful if we got to know him a little better. And... Um, I, you know, the stuff I read, it can't be right. So I just got to ask you about some of it. Um, sure. You know, like, did he really strip Disney, a private company, of some of its authorities and take those into the government? 
Is that, I mean, to me, that's what, what, you know, the dictator of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, did when he nationalized the oil industry. What kind of a conservative strips companies of their powers in order to add to governments? Well, you know, that's that's a, an interesting point you make there. Yeah, this goes back uh, almost a year ago when the uh, parental education law, uh, dubbed by its critics as Don't Say Gay Bill, was moving through the Florida legislature. Uh, that's the bill that uh, basically prohibits discussion about uh, gender orientation or identity or sexual orientation or identity uh, kindergarten through third grade. Um, Disney came out against the bill last year, and the governor didn't like that. And he announced, I think it was last April, that he was at one point going to just uh, dismantle the uh, Reedy Creek Improvement Tax Improvement District, which is a special district that was created in the 1960s, basically in two counties in Florida to operate Disney's operations. Uh, Fifty, um, I believe it's 55,000 acres. And yes, and and they actually did not dismantle it. They basically have changed it around. He gets the authority now to name the the, the board there, though, that runs that. Uh, and it, it did come out of a basically uh, his his anger at, at them opposing that and saying. And look, Disney maybe gotten some, you know, it's a lot of corporations do some some tax benefits that that weren't fair and maybe deserve. Uh, I think it's really worthy of reviewing whether they should have those those uh, those those certain benefits and the like. But this came clearly out of uh, out of uh, him wanting to rebuke that organization. And Disney basically uh, has not fought that at all. Uh, you know, I guess they weighed it and essentially said, you know, we're not going we're not going to move out of Orlando certainly. So we'll have to play by his rules. And I guess you know what you've seen there, Edwin, is what you've seen in so many different situations over the past year or so, especially. Actually, uh, Governor DeSantis has been is super aggressive in going after certain organizations or, and, you know, really higher education has been where he's been aiming at a lot in the last, you know, the last year or so. And he's being very successful. I mean, there are some of these issues that are hold up in the courts, but he wins a lot of those issues in the courts. And, uh, you know, he's basically getting away with a lot right now. And, and you know, he, he's coming off a huge election, a re-election victory and a couple months ago, 19-point victory over Democrat Charlie Crist. And as you know, when I think all your listeners know, obviously he's looking very seriously at, at running for president. And, you know, we, we, we've had a lot already happen in early here in 2023 in the legislative session. is not even officially in session. They've been having these committee weeks. They had a special session on the Disney issue last week. Uh, they go into a regular session next month. And it's considered that after that session ends in early May is when he's probably, you know, going to announce his candidacy for, for president. Yeah, we'll get to his president's run in a bit. But let's just finish with his local record. Um, yeah. You, you've talked about colleges and his attack on, on colleges next. Um, he, he seems to want higher ed in the state to um, – uh, he wants to chill uh, uh, the thinking there. I mean, he, he, he says, oh, they're all leftists and they all want to indoctrinate our kids – and they want to teach people that black Americans have a history that's different somehow from the history of white Americans. I don't know. God, this is a shocking thought. <laughs> but right. So that's what that's what he's trying to go after. And he's putting in place college uh, leaders that that have a political agenda first. Now, he's doing that by saying the ones who were there, who were there previously had a political agenda 
But um, they didn't at least see it that way. They thought their agenda was about educating and opening minds to different issues. He wants to not talk about a bunch of things, right? Whether it's trans people or gay rights or black American history. He just doesn't want that talked about in schools. So how does that help higher ed? Um, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I how does that help I, we really see what we've seen, you know, you talk about what he's doing here with higher education. I think the classic example of, you know, what the governor has said, basically, he's, he says it's about education, not indoctrination. And he's accused, uh, you know, college campuses in many cases here of uh, being indoctrinating students. But what he's been doing or is going on right now at New College down in Sarasota, down uh, south of the Tampa Bay area is really is really instructive because what he what he's seen there, it was basically a forceful takeover of the school. This is kind of a progressive school. Uh, it's less than a thousand students down in Sarasota. It's been doing its thing, you know, for many years. Uh, and it's definitely, you know, um, alternative and you could definitely say, you know, progressive. So what he did is he placed uh, six conservative board of trustees members onto that, uh, which he had the authority to do. And basically what they came in and done is uh, they ousted the school president and then they named um, as interim president, Richard Corcoran, a former GOP state house speaker uh, and Ford education secretary. And they're paying him uh, well over $300,000 more than the, the woman they just ousted. Uh, and I, and you know, supposedly this is all about, you know, finances, that new college wasn't operating its finances in a fiscally responsible way. And some people are questioning, then why are you paying this guy now $700,000? Uh, and, and, and what you've heard from some of these people, Christopher Rufo is one of these newly appointed board members. Uh, some, some, pe- some listeners may recognize that name. He's been very prominent in the anti-CRT uh, discussion over the last couple of years. And Rufo has talked about how he'd like to see New College become uh, Hillsdale College, which is a private uh, school in Michigan uh, that is conservative leaning. So that's what the intention is, whether that will actually happen or not. So you're taking a school that definitely has, you know, been a progressive school and turn it around. And so some of the people are saying, well, isn't that indoctrination just by that your you know form of indoctrination? So that has been controversial. And as you mentioned, there's all these other uh, uh issues that are going on with higher ed, with education overall. You know, this goes, you know, we, we've really seen this, and this goes on the national, uh, you know, uh, playbook to you know, Virginia, right, when Glenn Youngkin won an election there in 2021. Um, the, the issue of parental rights in schools was a, was a real uh, catalyst issue coming out of the coronavirus and the issues with school, uh, with masks and, and uh, school shutdowns. Uh, DeSantis really picked up on that last year. He got involved in these local school board races. I believe he selected about 30 races he got involved with, and I believe 25 of those people won. And so, you know, he's been very aggressive. This is by far the most aggressive leader I've seen in my lifetime, left or right, in terms of utilizing their power to do what they want to have accomplished. And, you know, I I was saying this the other day about the situation regarding Andrew Warren. Uh, not just switch from education, but this is another big issue, right? Andrew Warren was the, um, the state attorney here in the, in the Tampa area, Hillsborough County, uh, elected twice by the voters. Uh, and then he was, um, DeSantis, shockingly, in August, he uh, suspended Warren. Uh, and not for anything he had done, per se, but for statements he had said that he would not enforce uh, current or potential state laws regarding abortion or transgender health care. 
And that happened, like I said, over six months ago. Uh, and so far, Warren has been losing in the courts to try to get his job back. But I was comparing that the other day. I was thinking about this to our former governor, Rick Scott, now U.S. Senator Rick Scott. Uh, there was an issue in the Orlando area where a state attorney announced that she would not um, go after, use the death penalty against somebody who shot, a, uh, shot and killed a, a police officer. And that was very controversial. This, this prosecutor said she wouldn't do that, which she had never said when she ran for office that she was against the death penalty. Anyway, Rick Scott suspended, or not, you know, Rick Scott did not suspend her. He took her away from any capital cases, right? But he did not, uh, by any means, remove her from office. That was, you know, controversial at the time. Uh, in this case of Andrew Warren, it was more of like thought crimes, if you will, statements he had made that, that are, are reminiscent of maybe some of these progressive DAs that we've seen around the country. And, and the governor just went straight in and removed him. And, you know, frankly, that was that was shocking. Uh, and, uh, you know, and a federal judge came out uh, with this ruling on this case. And he blasted the governor, a 59-page uh, ruling, uh, and said he had violated the state attorney, Andrew Warren's uh, you know, federal civil rights, uh, his First Amendment rights, uh, state constitutional rights. But because he didn't have the power, he could not reinstate him. So to me, that's the classic example of even when Ron DeSantis kind of loses because he, the judge rebuked him. He still won because the bottom line is – that state attorney is uh, on the outside looking in, and uh, he appointed a Republican in Tampa to replace uh, Andrew Warren, who, like I said, had been popularly elected twice by the voters in Tampa. Well, how do the Tampa voters feel about that? Yeah, well, right. I mean, and who knows? Andrew Warren may get a chance, you know, uh, to run again for that same seat next year. Uh, you know, he's we don't know what he's going to do with his future here. But right, and this came, uh, I will say, this uh, after the 2020 election, right? And there was there was of course protests in the summer of George Floyd protests, right? There was some t- protests in Tampa, and some people uh, didn't like, you know, the way that uh, Warren d- did not prosecute maybe some of the people who who uh, were protesting. Uh, but the fact is that he went by more than five points at the polls in November. So the the people in Tampa thought Andrew Warren was doing an okay job. Uh, you know, a flash forward a year later. Governor DeSantis asked somebody in his, in his administration, hey, are there any of those um, – do we have any kind of those so-called progressive DAs that, that I read about in other parts of the country, in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco? Do we have any here in Florida? And the only one that they could come up with was Andrew Warren in Tampa, who, in my opinion, isn't, wasn't nearly as, uh, you know, as progressive as some of these DAs I've been mentioning in other areas. Uh, but, but he had said – you know, he, he had – then some things he had said, again, like about abortion, he had signed a, a, a document after the Dobbs decision came down, said he would not prosecute abortion cases. And that that was the uh, the nexus for the governor to go in and say, uh, you can't do those things. And, and you're basically uh, remove him from office. And yeah, I guess governor has the power in Florida to do that. It's it's an, it's not well, the power no, that right. every I governor mean, has. Yeah. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, it's it, it looks like at least uh, I mean, the thing was um, Warren Andrew Warren was challenging on First Amendment grounds, basically saying you're, you're, you're you know, fire me for my speech for saying I was going to do these things. I didn't even do these things. Right. I didn't even we didn't have an abortion case actually come up. You know, so it was more like the statement. Yep, uh, yep. Can, you, can you fire me for that? You know, and so and so it's it's, it's very controversial. And uh, but, but, you know, Florida has really it's amazing. Ron DeSantis won his uh, election over Andrew Gillum in 2018 by uh, less than a half a percentage point. Right. It was an extremely close race. Uh, and 
basically, you know, what's happened four years later, then he wins by 19 points. Uh, I think the real thing that's this, it's changed in the state that it always been a, a, a quintessential swing state, although that had kind of been moving a little more red in, in the last five mm-hmm. years or so. Donald Trump, right, won the state uh, in 2016 by a point. Uh, so it, we saw that already happening a little bit. But what we've seen, uh, Edwin, is the, uh, the the pandemic, right? It's changed a lot in America uh, in many ways that we see, in some ways we don't see three years after uh, it first hit America. And I think for DeSantis, it's been it's been a boon for him because basically he is he campaigned for reelection last year on this whole idea of the freedom state that, you know, we he opened up the state uh, much earlier than other states did and let businesses flourish down here. And there's no question when it comes to the numbers, people have been migrating down to Florida uh, by a large amount. Right. They've been leaving certain states. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful state. I mean, it's right. 20 and, degrees yeah, where I am. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, right. So Florida, right? Forget about who the governor is. Florida is always going to be a place that's going to draw people in because of the weather, because we have no state income tax here. But you know, I think that in some ways, uh, and, and some people were frustrated. You know, in places where where there was the lockdowns, you know, a couple years ago, and so they had the means to come down here. And again, Florida is not as expensive as some of those other states, although it's getting there. I think we're really having a bit of an affordability crisis here in in Florida when it comes to property mm-hmm. insurance, when it comes to rents, and it's something that the Democrats. They really didn't, you know, I I thought they had a a good good issue to run on last year. It didn't really seem to get them anywhere. Uh, But but, so there's been a migration of people down here. And I guess in some cases they're bringing their politics, their conservative politics with them. And so we have seen for the first time now this is a this is definitely a red state. This is no longer a purple state anymore, Uh, even though voter registration numbers are not that large gap. I think it's Republicans by two or three points right now, more than it's the first time in the history of the state that there's more Republicans registered Republicans in the state than Democrats. That changed about a year and a half ago Um, Mm -hmm. when when Barack Obama won uh, election or reelection here. I think there was 700,000 more Democrats than Republicans. That, that was like a decade ago. And that's now t- turned the other way around. I think you've basically seen like a million voter switch over since then. So he has led, you know, that way. And it's, and it's so it, it does feel and Democrats were just totally, they had no enthusiasm last year. They conceded seemingly before it all began that, that Ron DeSantis was going to win, that, that Marco Rubio was going to win reelection. And they, they came out in very paltry numbers. And, and so it really had a, a down ballot effects where Republicans also won uh, county commissions in the county. I'm in the Tampa Bay area here in Pinellas County in St. Petersburg in Tampa, uh, Miami Day, right? Um, a, a traditionally Democratic stronghold, Ron DeSantis won there. Uh, so it's been it's been amazing to watch this uh, transmogrification of the state here in the last couple of years. Yeah. So, so he, he, you talked about sort of the impact of COVID and how he rode, rode. the early opening to um, some popularity, but he now seems to have taken that another step. And I, I understand he wants to ban any vaccine requirements from schools. I mean, that, that yeah, flies so. in the face of, of uh, 50 years of public health policy. And this is where it seems to to me, a little more political, right? Ron DeSantis, when uh, he wanted, in fact, I was reading, I think, the Washington Post has a story this morning talking about the uh, DeSantis-Donald Trump relationship and how when the vaccines were about to come, you know, be released, uh, he was, uh, DeSantis was pushing Trump 
to to make sure that Florida was one of the first places to get the vaccine because, of course, of the senior population here. And, of course, we all know that seniors have always been the most vulnerable population to COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. DeSantis, DeSantis made an issue definitely he, uh, about getting that vaccine and, and, and pushing that. OK, so he was not in the beginning when this was happening in any way I would ever label anti-vax whatsoever. He encouraged it. But as we've seen along the time from there, that has become a political issue. And in fact, Donald Trump, right, I think I said at times, um, you know, Trump, and I think he can, that's something he can be proud of is uh, uh, Operation uh, Warp Speed, right, in terms of how those vaccines, we got them out within a year or so. So, right. So now DeSantis has, has a much different viewpoint of of those vaccines, because as we've seen in the in the the MAGA base, if you will, that you know vaccines are not popular anymore, and, and apparently none of them are now. You know, I mean, this has all changed because of COVID, and so and, and some people speculate this is actually an issue where he's going trying to go to the right of Donald Trump on, uh, and I think Trump is actually troubled by that because well, you know now I, you know it was you know. Yeah, I, I'm, but I'm trying to get a picture of who this man is, right? He was a, he was a, <clears throat> excuse me, he was a, he took AP courses in high school. He was an AP scholar of the year when he was a young man. Now he's against all AP because, I don't know, because they teach uh, black history. Um, he, he was for getting people vaccinated. Now he's against requiring any vaccines. Um, it seems that if it's political opportunism, as you suggest, I right now trying to get to the right of Donald Trump um, for a base that's lost its mind, my words, not yours. Um, um, but if it's just opportunism, there's reality he has to bite. People are going to die because the public health uh will deteriorate because these vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella, these things are real. I mean, and those vaccines have made a difference. Um, The policy choices he's making seem to be detached from public outcomes and governing. Well, on education, look, I mean, I, you talk about the AP courses. I think the, the ones that they're objecting to, the DeSantis administration, were there were some uh, have those studies focusing on things like queer theory, prison abolition movement, uh, Black Panthers, things like that, that he is objected to as being um, more uh, opinion than, than, you know, than, than facts. Uh, that's where he is on, on that. That's where he's backed himself up on that. You know, I'll go back to um, uh, where he is on, uh, you, you mentioned um, well, I'm sorry. I just got confused there. But, but, but the, vac- the vaccines, again, that was something that that is new. That I, I would say that's opportunism. I mean, he's talked about, right, Florida is the place where woke, woke goes to, to die. And the anti-woke movement on the conservative base is a very strong and potent movement. And, you know, I think other governors and other states are, are following in his lead. He is just more aggressive about this. Uh, and, and again, I think that, I think that the concern is – uh, I mean, look, the, the, you know, the fact that parental rights and education law, going back to that for a moment, but quote unquote, don't say gay, that has actually, I, I think that that has not, you know, the Democrats really got no mileage out of that. I was in terms of education uh, that I, I don't, there were some polls that showed that that was actually a popular move, right? That he did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, and so the Demo- so on these cultural issues, the Democrats are really, um, in many cases, on their on on their on their heels and are, are, are reacting 
to what he is doing here. And again, they they resist. Look, in Florida, even though, like I said, you know, it's kind of changed in terms of the party registration in the last couple of years. Florida, in the 20 years I've lived here, has always been a dominant conservative state when it comes to our state government. Uh, there has yes. not been a Democratic governor since the late 1990s. Uh, since the mid-90s, it, the, the legislature, the House and Senate, has been Republican, even though, you know, up until a couple years ago, there were more Democrats in the state. So there's always yeah. been, you know, we, we've had Jeb Bush, we've had Rick Scott. These are conservative governors who got their way all on the way. But DeSantis is, is definitely a different cat. He is he is aggressive. You know, I will say this. Ron DeSantis, where he was in Congress a decade ago, 2012, he first got elected to Congress. Um, he then was going to run for U.S. Senate in 2015, 2016, when Marco Rubio was running for president. And, uh, you know, then he had to drop out of that race when Rubio got back in the race, ended up running for governor. But I've always looked at him in terms of he's, he's really animated by federal issues more than he is statewide issues. And, and, and I, I'm going back to his first year in office when he went after so-called sanctuary cities, right, about immigra- immigration here, where we really didn't really have any sanctuary cities. But it was a hot issue, cons- uh, conservative. It was a conservative big issue in other states. And so he they brought they hear, that here. I find sometimes that, again, so it's kind of like nationalizing some of the things that are going on in other places that were, weren't really that big of a deal here in Florida that, that came along here because they were the, the topic du jour on, on Fox News, right? And they were the big issue mm-hmm. here. And now that's kind of transcended that to now where we lead here on some of these issues, whether they're really that big. Again, I'll talk to about election issues, right? We've all seen since the 2020 election how so many states have changed their election laws, uh, trying to restrict whether it's uh, drop boxes or you know vote by mail ballots. Well, here in Florida, you know, we, the, the Republicans led the way with uh, early voting and, and voting by mail, going back to the mid-aughts where they are very successful with that model. So, again, like, why would we want to fix anything here when it's pretty much working pretty well? Well, those other states are all complaining about, about issues, election stuff, so we've got to do our things here. So we've passed two major election reform bills since the 2020 election where, you know, by all means, by all standards, Florida had a very successful, smooth election, nothing controversial. Trump won by three points, you know, that time around. And yet we've, we've done, still done those election laws. Why? Because other states are doing them and we want to, you know, keep up with them. Um, so, but, so I've seen this in many cases where under DeSantis, Florida has pushed some of these issues, these, con- over, you know, these conservative issues that weren't necessarily burning issues here but became part of, of what we we're going to do here. And now with the, the higher education stuff, this is where he is leading and, and other places are following him. And, uh, you know, it, it, again, you know, he's, he won by 19 points, so he's got the win. Yeah, 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 yeah. And taking books out of elementary schools, too, and high schools. Yeah, so there's, so, there's a lot yeah. going on here, yeah. All right. Well, I, I, I think he's going to find a different reception up here uh, in a different part of the country. What you've described, um, as you say, he's looked around at, at what's going on in other states and he's trying, you know, to, to get ahead of them. There is another perspective in the country that he's looked around at the worst things that are happening in the country and he's tried to go lower. Um, and he's used all of the power he can to coerce behavior, whether it's corporate behavior or educators' behavior or the public behavior in a direction that is um, frightening for many people in the country. So when he when he steps out of Florida, uh, I think he's going to have a not just the not just the weather will be chillier, but the reception I think will be much chillier. And I know when he if he gets as he comes here um, to 
Chicago, he might be able to hang in a secret meeting with the FOP. But if he were out in public, he would be um, he would find, you know, people very vocal about how distasteful they think his policies and his politics are. Yeah, and you I wonder how he'll take that. Yeah, well, well you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. And supposedly, you know, you're right. He's in Chicago on Monday. He's also going to be going. Uh, he has a book coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, I think a week and a half, actually. And he's going to be hitting the road for that, kind of maybe a mini tour for, you know, a, a potential presidential tour. And and you're right, absolutely right, Edwin. There's gonna, it's going to be very interesting to see the reaction he gets around the country because he's able to do these things in Florida and not get too much pushback. I mean, there was a major civil rights rally in Tallahassee on Wednesday. The Reverend Al Sharpton was in, was in the state capitol on Wednesday about these issues of the AP African-American courses. Uh, and, that, and that was a pretty major rally. But again, because he's got the numbers in terms of the legislature here, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't get much pushback. He doesn't get that much at all. And I think that, and, and my, my take about them is, you know, as a, as a potential national figure is this stuff is perhaps great for the GOP base. And he's really, you know, consolidating himself to, to be a very serious contender for the Republican nomination for president. But, but for the, for the, to win the national election, I think that's a totally different story now because whenever we want to call America center right or center left country, I mean, I, we saw with Joe Biden's election a couple of years ago. It's mostly a center country. It's mostly yeah, a center well, country, right? Right. And, and, I, and I think that I've always thought certain people couldn't be like, I think Gavin Newsom, I think, would be a great foil against, uh, 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 um, you know, DeSantis if he were to run. But uh, but I think that Gavin Newsom is perceived as maybe too far to the left. I don't know. You know, that's mm-hmm. true not, but I think he's perceived as such. And Ron DeSantis, though, I think just like there's certain people who, um, you know, are effective, but but. Is this stuff going to play in the, in the rest of the country, in the suburbs, right? I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think it's, it sounds great to the, the base right now, but, it, you know, every presidential candidate at some point has to move towards the center. And, and you know, it's interesting. DeSantis was, uh, when he got elected in, in 18, again, by barely, right, over Andrew Gillum, he was very much, uh, at least the first six months of his, of his gubernatorial reign, centrist, I would dare say. And he had very high approval numbers. Uh, and he was doing some things in terms of uh, the environment, uh, in terms of cannabis. Uh, you know, he was he was definitely showing an indication that I'm not going to be this 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 right wing figure. I'm going to try to be a, a governor for all people. And that really went out the window. And again, things are really I think the transformation on DeSantis was the coronavirus pandemic where, yeah, you know, yeah. he. He got emboldened by it. And, and, you know, look, people did say that when he opened up the beaches and what have you, that, you know, because of Florida senior population, that we were going to have all these deaths. And that did not happen. That was that happen. was not, you know, yep. it did. Yep. It did. You know, and, and, and we, we weren't one of the, the best in terms of that, but we were by no means the worst. And so I do think there was some over. I think the media sometimes does, you know, doesn't do themselves any favors when they overreact to some of these things that have happened. And so, but right, but the, the narrative that, that he has used uh, successfully, accurate or not, is that uh, he was a leader in terms of uh, opening up the state and having the state be a place of freedom and a country that was, is being, you know, again, the perception here, uh, you know, of a country that's, that was shut down like California was, like, or New York was, right? And so people wanted to, to, to be free of that. And in retrospect, I think, again, we all, it's been, again, three years since the COVID first broke out. And, you know, I certainly remember, I'm sure you too, how, how terrifying that was at the beginning of that. And nobody knew how, you know, what was going to be happening there. And yet I think a lot of people have forgotten that, you know? And so, yeah. 
they look more of like where we've been at the last year and a half or so and look, at, look askance at those things like shutting down schools, for example, right? And so, and by the way, DeSantis did shut them down here, too. He, he, sometimes that is not part of the, uh, the narrative, but right. actually they were shut down right. here as well. For a bit. All right, Mitch, I'm afraid well, that, that was the fastest half hour I've ever spent on the radio. We're going to have to talk again because there's much more to talk about, yeah, but we've run out of time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. All right, everybody, that was Mitch Perry, uh, who covers Florida politics and government. And as you could hear, he has, a, he has a deep knowledge of what's going on down there and a lot to say about it. We need to hear more from him. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay. Um, you know, I like having people get involved in in the arena of politics. And Ross Morales Rocchetto has helped that happen. He's the co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something. And, and we've talked before on this show, Run for Something helps recruit and support young people running for office. They're building uh, excitement and momentum and lifelong commitment, a strong democratic bench. Um, and along the way, they're building communities. He and I talked yesterday. Uh, here's that conversation. So, so Ross, let's take a, a moment and cover just some of the um, uh, the things you've been able to get done since you started back in 2017. Yeah. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Um, you know, since we first got started back in 2017, uh, it's been it's been a busy six years. You know, like we started, you know, with the idea that, like, this would probably be a side hustle. Uh, that my co-founder and I and Amanda had. And then we launched on Inauguration Day. We had, you know, thousands of people tell us they were interested in running for office. Uh, and since then, we have over 126,000 people who told us that they're interested in running for office in all 50 states across the country. Um, you know, we've worked with, you know, over 2,000 candidates directly um, to help them win, like, their elections. Uh, and this year, uh, we actually reached a thousand wins. Um, so, you know, like of those 2000, a little over 2000 candidates, uh, about, we've had about a thousand wins. Uh, and so just, you know, like since we've got, like, I don't think if you had asked me if any of this was possible when we first got started, I probably would have, I probably would have laughed at you. Uh, and you know, 2022 was the best year. Uh, that we ever had. We ended up working with uh, six over 600 candidates. Uh, 490 of them had elections on election day uh, in November. And of those folks, over 250 of them won, uh, which means that we are well over a 50% win rate. Uh, and that's one of the first times, that's the first time we've actually ever um had over 50% of our candidates win on election day. And, you know, part of the reason for that is because we're taking risks on candidates that, you know, the party or sort of the establishment wouldn't necessarily work with otherwise because they're running in really tough places. And, you know, for us, like the reason for that is like our core mission is to just get more young, diverse, progressive folks running for office. And that means, you know, supporting those people when they run, even if their races are really tough. And, and the races that you have covered have, have spanned from what to what, from school board to mayor? I mean, what's the, 
What's the range of offices you've helped candidates run for? Yeah, so everything we do is down ballot. So we don't do congressional races. We don't do statewide races like governor. Right. Um, everything we do is at the local level. So, yeah, it covers, as you said, school boards. You know, there's a mosquito board district uh, right. that we've worked with a candidate in out in Florida. We've worked with a handful of mayors. Um we worked with the mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, we got in really early with uh, the current mayor of Cleveland. His name is Justin Bibb. Um, and so, yeah, like they're really, and then, you know, we also do state legislative races as yep. well. And city uh, council, state cycle. legislation. Yep. Well, 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 cycle we had, we had a handful of candidates who actually were part of flipping state legislative chambers in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona. So I want to I definitely want to talk about politics, but there's something else I want to raise. It's a little different. It's more about our social fabric, what makes strong communities. And in my life, I've noticed that is often, you know, people getting together to make a difference in their neighborhoods. They get, you know, get out of their house, they get offline, they meet each other, they they develop not just they don't just share ideas, they share ideas and build a common sense of purpose, which then they go out to build up their communities. And it it contributes to social fabric. It's sort of a healthy way to make America block by block a better place. And that's the that's the miracle of what you're engaged in, I think. Yeah, it really is. I mean, like when we're thinking about the people that we really want to work with, um, you know, like one of the first things that comes up is like, we want to be working with people who are deeply rooted in their communities. And, you know, that could, that can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. You know, like one of the most common questions that we get asked by candidates that are thinking about running for office is like, well, how long do I need to have lived in a place um, to run for office? And the answer to that question is like, there is no time, like there's no time frame that you should have lived in a place. The real question is like, how involved are you? Like when there's a, in whatever, whatever thing you choose to be involved in, like, are you one of the people that gets the call at 10 o'clock at night when like your neighbors have a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and if that, if the answer to that question is yes, then like, you know, that's like a pretty good barometer of like the way your community views you. Um, and, you know, I think as you were talking about, like the beauty of sort of like doing all of the local work is that that's where like most of the, you know, we, we, we just, we focus so much on all the federal things, things going on in Congress, whatever the president's doing, all that stuff. But the real, like a lot of the real change and a lot of the power like in this country is in the local is in local government, local and state government. And, you know, like the ability to make real change, like start, you know, at the block at the individual level. So, yeah, I think like there's something, and this is why I feel really passionately about this work. You know, there's something like really, I think beautiful about like people who are involved community members going out, and knocking on their neighbor's doors and telling them about like the problems that they want to solve in their communities and like working together to try to get them solved. Doesn't mean that 
you know, you're always going to, you know, it's always going to be smooth sailing and everything's always going to be hunky dory. But like, you know, I think there's like a real beauty and sort of like the people going out there and getting it done and also sort of the messiness of like all of the whole thing. So I have a, a theory I want to run by you because you said when you started, you had no idea that you would be this successful. But I think the world you started in is a different world than the, than the one we're in today. Um, I, I think uh, we were in a world where people had abdicated a little bit their citizenship responsibilities. We were living a little bit more with, okay, there's a leadership group in America and they're doing their job and we're going to leave it to them even though we don't like the decisions they're making. And then Donald Trump got elected and a bunch of people said, you know what? I, I have to raise my hand. I, I, it isn't okay to outsource citizenship, you know, to, uh, to other people and to watch it on the news. And I've seen this in your work, but in dozens of wonderful community-based efforts to help people organize and get, I mean, then the national women's March wasn't even community based was everywhere just to reignite people in their sense that the democracy re- is really about how do I, what's my role in this democracy that I live in. And you're helping people answer that question and, and, and not just the candidates, but all the people they bring with them to the races they run. So it's a different country in some ways, a healthier one. I think that's, I think that's totally right. I, you know, I think, you know, one thing that is also true of it is that like, it was like a, that, that was like a not, that, that moment was not, is not replicable again, you know, like we'll have a different moment where, you know, there will be sort of like a rebirth of like civic, like movement. You know, mm-hmm. in the future, I'm sure that, you know, like that's the that's cyclical, but like um, the specifics of that individual time, I think, can't be replicated. And, you know, like if we try to start run for something today, like I'm not sure it would work, to be totally honest, or at least not work the same way. Um, you know, there was uh, there was like there was like a hunger for people to get out there and do something, you know, that like was driven by a lot of different emotions. I think that people were having about the election, but like, I think, you know, the core, you know, the core that you talked about is the, like, I think just like a lot, I think people didn't expect the outcome that we got in 2016. No, uh, they did not. <laughs> it was a wake up call, but it, but like, I, I know we have a dark view of the time we're living in because of the uh, affronts to democracy that are going on in a bunch of States. But I also see Ordinary Americans and young Americans raising their hand and saying, those affronts won't go unanswered. We can't build the future we want to build in this country still. And I view that as such a positive um, for our country. And and you guys have given people the on-ramp to do that, which is an enormous service to the to the society, not just to our politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that, but, you know, that means a lot. And, like, you know, when you, when you really think about, like, the last 
I guess, whatever, six years since 20, the end of the, of, since the beginning of 2017, the, the amount of activism and like people getting involved and like deciding that they were going to do something, you know, is like something, as you said, like that had waned. It has been waning over the years. I think, you know, the election of Barack Obama brought some of it back in, in, in a very different kind of way. And honestly, in a much more, you know, like it was much more positive and hopeful um, back then. But like, you know, after sort of like the initial like aura wore off of the 20, the 2008 election, um, I think things just sort of like went back to the way they were before, which was just like more cynicism, people being and being and feeling more disengaged. Um, and it isn't to say that those things don't still exist in a lot of ways today. Um, but, you know, like the, the anger, the outrage, the surprise, the guilt that all like came out of the 2016 election cycle ended up, you know, like creating some silver linings. You know, if I could, you know, if I could choose between, run for something existing and never having had Donald Trump as president, I would have chose, I would choose not ever having Donald Trump as president. Um, but you know, like we don't, you don't get, you don't get a time machine. So like, I think there were a lot of folks who really made the, have made the best out of the moment. Um, and you know, there's a lot of people who things will never, you know, for a lot of people, things will never be the same. Um, you know, like the sort of like, way that they engage with the world, the awareness that they have of the world is going to stick with them. And, you know, like sometimes it doesn't always express in a hopeful, it doesn't always express in a hopeful way, but we have also like a much more engaged like group of like group of folks and voters and even non-voters in this country than we did, you know, the day before the 2016 election. And mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's like, that's absolutely, that is absolutely like a, a silver lining that came out of yeah. that cycle. I, right. We're thinking more about who we are and that as, and doing something about it. When I was young, Ross, and running for something, um, the country was, I think, um, more bigoted than it is today. And yet, Today's right wing rage feels different to me, feels different, feels um, harsher, um, crueler, um, um, more proud of their bigotry. Um, And when I talk to young people, particularly politically active young people, they are disgusted and determined to move us forward together. And in some ways, this feels like a bigger generational shift than than anything since maybe the 1960s. Yeah, I think, yeah, where to start? I mean, I think, I think a lot of things are coming together right now at the same time. And absolutely true is there are a large number of people who are conspiracy theorists and they believe the conspiracy theories they talk about. Like that is an, that is an absolute truth. Many of the leaders of, of, of those movements of people 
don't, I, I actually think are almost worse in a lot of ways because I don't think that they necessarily, I don't think many of that, a lot of them actually believe most of what they say. I think it's like purely, I think it's pure cynicism. Well, Ross, let's be, let's, let's, let's put a stake in the ground here because this week we learned from, um, uh, court filings that the leadership at Fox absolutely knew that the election, uh, a big lie was nothing other than a lie and that they stuck to it and went on TV about it only because they were worried about their ratings only because they thought Donald Trump could hurt them financially. They lied to everybody. And now that is well known, right? Because these filings have them saying it. So you could not be more correct. The leaders are cynical liars. They're cynical. And, you know, like, Part of the strategy that the right has gone has gone with is, is the idea that the more cynical and disconnected people feel from each other and from their government, the less likely they are to trust that government, the more likely they are to believe that the government is out to get them. And the United States, you know, like this is like this sort of like threat in the U.S. sort of like political life is not new. I think like the Tocqueville wrote about it, like way back in the, you know, way back in the day about how like, there's just like a weird sort of like a conspiratorial like notion that always sort of like underpins us sort of us political life. Um, and you know, like I think they have used, they've used that cynicism to try to win elections at all costs. And right now all costs means undermining people's faith in democracy. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think like, you know, I think they have, I think the, the, the positive, the negative is that there are a sizable, very vocal, but like very clear minority of people who have lost some faith in democracy. The upside is that, you know, a larger number of the pop, the folks in the population who participate in democracy by voting, um, you know, when they go out to their polling places, the majority of people are going out and seeing the same, like, like old ladies that have been doing that, like have been running that polling location for 30 years and they see their neighbors and they go out and they cast their ballot. And for most people, most of the time, the experience is like, is not really noteworthy. You know, they like wait in the line. A lot of times the lines are too long. Um, you know, especially like in, uh, like working class Georgia. and like <laughs> Georgia, yeah, predominantly like yeah. DOC neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. But like for the majority of the population, like when they go out and vote, like they don't see fraud, you know, they see like four, four, five, 60 to 70 year old women who've been running that phone location for decades who they know and they say hi to, you know, like I've lived in this neighborhood, same neighborhood in Washington, DC on and off for, um, Oh wow. Probably we're going on 13 years now. Um, and like the people that like I vote in the same place that I vote always voted in here in DC and like, the people who run the polling location are always the same. Mm-hmm. And, we had, 
we've had um, a turnover in this last election. Some of the threats drove people away. And, and, and um, I know we've had, a t- at least in, in where I live, we've had to do a lot of work recruiting um, people to be to run the elections because people with COVID took its toll on on many here. Um, but it's still your neighbors who come and do it. It's still a, a, a very I mean, America knows how to run elections. We run them at community levels, really. Um, I, I thought I don't know about you, but I thought the biggest heroes in the last election cycle um, were people who and, and Republicans were in this group who lost elections and conceded, right? All over the country in this particular moment we're in, there were very few Kerry Lakes, right? Most people who lost, even the Doug Mastrianos of the world, these horrible election deniers, they they said, yep, that was an election and I, I lost. Dr. Oz went back to New Jersey. I mean, it wasn't a, you know, I think that that went a long way towards helping us overcome the lie it did and i think like i think we also saw this election cycle so you know like i'm deeply skeptical that there's like a mythical voter out there who like really cares about like democracy like that's like their animating issue what i do think is there are millions of voters out there that looked at their choices And when they like started to pay even a little bit of attention to see what their choices were, they saw a choice between somebody that they may or may not have liked, but like seemed relatively normal and somebody who was saying things that just like that felt so far out of the norm that like they just couldn't even they couldn't mess with those people. You know, like I've heard so many stories of like, you know, independent voters who maybe normally lean Republican or Republican voters or Democratic voters who are disenchanted with the Democratic Party who, like, looked at their choices and said to themselves, like, this person does not represent me. I can't even, like, I can't even get close to what this person is saying. Like, this is what they're saying scares me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a lot of people, the election denying was, like, the tip of the spear on that. Like, yeah, yeah, and that sort of became a lot of people's barometer for like, is this person like a, a conspiracy theorist or not? And like, yeah. you know, we had people running for U.S. Senate, secretaries of state, governors, election administrators across the country who were, you know, like saying that the election was rigged and stolen and, you know, voters heard it and just said like, yeah, we're not interested. Yep. Like, we're just so, not interested in that. Well, particularly, you work on local elections. And, you know, national elections are far away and they're abstract. Um, local elections are always about solving problems or seizing opportunities to make communities better. But they're very concrete. These are the, I mean, I'm involved in a mayor's race in Chicago. There's no talk about, you know, the grand democracy. There's talk about like, okay, people are getting killed. What are we going to do about it? You know, okay, we have a school funding crunch. What are we going to do about it? And by the way, you know what? I can't park in this neighborhood. (laughs) What do I do about it? Very, very local problem solving opportunity stuff. And you see that with your 
the candidates that you recruit every day. That's got to be very affirming. It is. It is really affirming. And I think that's, you know, that's what like, you know, the last six years have been like, a, have been long and been a grind, but mm-hmm. that's the thing that keeps me sort of like getting up in the morning and being able to do this work is like the candidates themselves. Like they're just, they're really inspiring. They're like going out there to try to solve problems. And, uh, you know, almost all of them are in it for the right reasons. And yep. like, there's something really inspiring when somebody gets up and says like, I'm going to fundamentally put lar- a large part of my life on hold because that's what you have to do when you're elected. And when elected you're, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, and I'm going to try to make my community a better place. It's just like, there's something, I don't know, there's something really beautiful about it. And <laughs> like, that's why, that's why this work, like continues to sort of like fuel me and inspire me because they're just like, you know, we work with so many incredible people who are just the, the things they're trying to do are ordinary, but it's like, they're, they're not, you know, like they're not at the same time. Well, yeah. And you know what? It, I, I mean, I have in my life, I've been lucky to work around the world and many of the places I've worked are not democracies. It is not ordinary in the world for individuals, to, individuals to raise their hands and say, I don't care who the emir is, who the head of the, the president is, who is running my government. I can make a difference. And I have an idea and my neighbors and I agree and we're going to make it happen. That is that's just not normal in the world. It is the m- miracle of living in a democracy. Yeah, and I think that's why sort of like, and this is something that I sort of like get back to in a lot of in, in a in a lot of what in a lot of things they talk about, which is this is why it's so important to that it's so important that the people we elect, who we elect, like matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the thing that happens is cynicism is like cynicism corrodes democracy. Like that's the the thing that ultimately like kills the democracy isn't, you know, like it's not a single person. It's not a set of issues. It's not even like a set of policies. It's cynicism. And yep. when we elect people, Voters want to see results. They want to yep. like see the things that they were told. They want to see the impact in their daily life. And when they yep. don't see those impacts, you know, they get angry. Like, they, they get frustrated. They get angry yeah. and they say like, "Why? What? Why?" I already, you know, Democrats go and say like, "Vote for us," and they're like, "Okay, but we voted for you," and like, you're like telling me that you did all this stuff, but like none of it. I don't see any of it impacting me, and you know, like that. That's how you get Donald Trump. Yeah, that and a pack of lies. Yeah, be honest. Yep. Well, and a billion dollars in forty years of demonizing Hillary. But yep, yep. Yeah, uh, let, let's just turn. We have a couple minutes left, and I just want to turn to the future. How's recruitment going? What are the biggest obstacles? Are people getting tired? What are you excited about in the cycle we are now in? Yeah, you know, recruitment was, you know, recruitment was easy in 2017 and 2018, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. was, like, interested in doing something. 
people sort of like picked the things that they really wanted to be involved in. A lot of people wanted to run for office. It was relatively easy to recruit people. As we moved into 2020, it just got a little harder. I think people were getting tired. Um, and then yeah, there was also a pandemic. Yep, and then the pandemic. And my expectation was that it would be almost impossible to recruit people. Um, like once we got out, if we if we had gotten out of the Trump era, and we did, thankfully, at least for the last the last period. Um, but it hasn't been as you know, it's not easy. It has absolutely gotten harder. Like, but it hasn't gotten hard in the way that I thought it would. Um, the things that have the the ways in which it has gotten difficult is there are a handful of different types of offices that have gotten more difficult to recruit for, like school board, uh, election administration positions like clerks, you know, and that's just because people are seeing in the news the harassment that those folks, in, and online, like the harassment mm-hmm. that those folks have been taking uh, over the course of the pandemic. So, you know, for those types of races, like there has, it has become more difficult, but like we still find people. And I think a thing that one other thing that has happened is it has become more difficult. Like we have seen a drop in the number of women specifically who are raising their hands to run for Mm -hmm. office. And the sort of like prevailing hypothesis on that right now is that it's, it's largely the result of like, people not wanting to be harassed. Um, and I think that's like totally, that's a totally fair reason uh, not to run. I think a lot of people, you know, as we as I just said, like people have seen what's going on online, uh, but that doesn't mean people aren't stepping up and running and we're actually, you know, recruitment has been going pretty well for us okay. uh, so far this year. So, I, and, you know, I think the one other thing that I would say is, you know, in the years between 2017 and sort of 2019, we had a lot of people who told us they were interested in running for office, you know, because like, because they were mad about Donald Trump and that stuff. Uh, the, most of those people, you know, when we t- ended up talking to them and trying to get them to file, didn't end up running for office. So a thing that we had actually seen in the last couple of years is that like most of the people who are stepping up and running and saying they're interested are people who have a, like there is a problem in their community that they want to solve. And like, that is the reason that they like have this, you know, whatever the problem is, that's the reason that they're stepping up. And I think that actually is a much more, that's a much more sustainable place to be in. Okay. So Ross, we've got about, we got about 30 seconds left. So will you use that time to tell people who are listening, if they're considering running for something, what should they do? Yeah. If you're thinking about running for something, go to runforwhat.net. You can look up what offices you want to run for uh, in your community. It'll show everything for this year and for next year. Okay. You heard it here. Um, Ross, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I hope we talk soon. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. Dan Schaefer has agreed to 
join us on short notice, really. I'm grateful to him. He is, of course, the veteran Milwaukee journalist who publishes the weekly independent opinion column called the Recombobulation Area. We talk from time to time about the state uh, of Wisconsin, but also the state of our larger democracy. And you can often read uh, his writings, not just on his own site, but on the WCPT website. Dan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Edwin. Always good to talk to you. Look, there are two important elections in Wisconsin, and I think the primary is this week. So let's just talk about both of them in the time we have. Um, Let's start with the Supreme Court race, because given the state of our politics, that court could, in theory at least, decide the next presidential election. Who are the parties running and what's that look like? Yeah, we are just three days away now from the primary for the incredibly important race for Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, The reason this year's uh, election is especially important is because the balance of the court is at stake. It is currently a 4-3 conservative majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, A conservative justice is retiring. Uh, and so that leaves an open seat and perhaps the best chance for liberals to flip the balance of the court uh, in quite some time. Uh, and so right now, uh, with uh, just a couple of days before the primary here, uh, there are two liberal candidates and two conservative candidates that will be on the ballot. Uh, the top two vote getters will move on to the general election, uh, which will be decided by April 4th. Uh, so. The stakes on this are just absolutely enormous. Uh, The court has played such a big role in Wisconsin politics, uh, especially over the last, you know, kind of 10, 15 years as conservatives and Republicans in the state have taken power. Uh, And so this is a real chance for for a reset and to kind of bring some checks and balances back to Wisconsin in a way that we haven't seen here in quite some time. Which, of course, the dark money machine on the right has recognized. And as you and I talked yesterday, and the reason why I, I, I reached out to you on such short notice is that that's when we learned only yesterday of a more than almost $8 million, $7.7 million independent expenditure campaign to influence this Supreme Court race. Yeah, the, the this is lining up to be not only the most expensive Wisconsin state or uh, state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin's history, but maybe the most expensive state race of its kind anywhere in the country. Uh, and we're already seeing the spending ramp up in advance of the primary. Uh, you mentioned the ad buy from the Dick Uline backed Fair Courts America Super PAC, uh, which is backing one of the conservative candidates, uh, former state Supreme Court Justice. Daniel Kelly, uh, who was appointed to the state Supreme Court uh, when there was a retirement in 2016. He was appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. uh, And then when he ran for a full 10-year term uh, in 2020, uh, he lost pretty handily to liberal candidate Jill Karofsky. You may remember that election uh, as the one that came kind of in the early weeks of the pandemic uh, when we were still kind of learning a lot about COVID and, and there were, uh, they kind of, there was a push to delay the, 
the election, and uh, it ended up with a lot of people uh, wearing masks out in lines outside in uh, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. casting their votes. Uh, so that is the that is the one that made you know winning that race made this possible uh, for liberals to to kind of uh, have an opportunity to flip the court this year. Uh, and so, like you mentioned, Daniel Kelly getting backed by the U-Lines. Uh, the other conservative candidate, Jennifer Doro, uh, has some pretty significant backing as well. Uh, and on the left, as far as, you know, the, the fundraising game goes, uh, there is one candidate who is way out in front of everybody, uh, Janet Protasiewicz, who is a liberal uh, justice from Milwaukee County. Uh, she, is, she is running for the court, and she is, I think, has raised more money than all of the three other candidates combined. Uh, uh, you know, so it, she is in uh, a pretty good shape to, uh, to make some noise in this race. I would, I would expect she would be the, the liberal candidate of the two. There's also Everett Mitchell, who's a Dane County judge. Uh, you know, he, he's a strong candidate as well, but hasn't picked up uh, the type of endorsements and support and fundraising that you might expect uh, or hope for in, in a high-stakes race like this. Uh, so I would expect Janet Protasiewicz uh, to be the liberal candidate to emerge on Tuesday's primary. But on the right, there's, it's a little bit more unknown. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say because Kelly and Doro, uh, you know, have really kind of been duking it out uh, between their, their supporters uh, as this campaign has unfolded. Uh, there's been a lot of infighting on the right. We saw that uh, in the, uh, the primary for the gubernatorial election last year between Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish. They ended up nominating uh, Tim Michaels. He lost to Democratic Governor Tony Evers. And it seems like, you know, that kind of infighting on the right in Wisconsin is, is continuing over um, into, uh, into this primary. So it's, I, I think there was a, there's a big expectation that Jennifer Doro, when she announced uh, that she was going to be the candidate to represent the, the conservatives in this race. But now, you know, with the Uline money at his back and a lot of uh, a lot of attacks at Doro uh, from his camp over the last couple weeks and months, uh, it's, it's anybody's guess who's going to be the candidate on the right. Uh, it's a terrible way to pick judges. I mean, I guess, you know, it's just it's a terrible way to pick judges in a campaign with lots of special interest money. But so much is at stake for the whole country. So I hope if you're listening, you will pick up the your, I don't know, your mouse, your laptop, your phone, get in touch with, I guess, Wisconsin Democrats and volunteer to help. So important. Can we turn to the other important election that's going on? You have a special election in in the state senate in the eighth district yeah that's another one i wrote about that uh this week uh at the recombobulation area and at uh, milwaukee record a, a publication i partner with uh and this is an especially important one uh because it is it will decide uh whether or not republicans have a supermajority in the state senate uh so the you know, it's a 50-50 state uh, in the state of Wisconsin. So many of our statewide elections uh, come down to decimal points. Uh, but in the, because of how deeply gerrymandered the districts are in the Wisconsin state legislature and in, in some of these uh, suburban districts around Milwaukee in particular, uh, you know, it is they are close to a two-thirds majority. So they, they drew themselves a map that gave them – the Republicans drew themselves a map that gave themselves a path to getting that two-thirds supermajority, uh, and in last fall's election, they came up 
two seats short in the assembly, and uh, they actually got there uh, by flipping a seat in the Senate. But then a republic, uh, a longtime Republican uh, state senator, uh, retired in December, so that opened up the uh, the special election here. So there is one Democratic candidate running. Uh, she will not face a primary challenge. Her name is Jody Habish Sinekin. Uh, she is uh, uh, in, in environmental. She is an attorney who is specialized in environmental law. Uh, she sued Foxconn, which is uh, you know if, if you remember that story, scandal uh, of scandals, right? Diverts a whole lot of water from uh, from Lake yeah. Michigan for their operations. She sued over that, and so I think that you know boosted her profile. Uh, she also her, she and her husband own a textile manufacturer uh, in the state as well. Uh, so she's a very strong candidate. I've been doing some reporting on this race. A lot of people have a lot of really good things to say about her. Uh, and then on the right, there are three candidates uh, that are, you know, duking it out in the primary. Uh, you have two state representatives uh, from the, that are kind of within that state Senate district, Janelle Branson and Dan Canodal, uh, and then a, uh, a mayor from one of the towns in the district, Dan Mobley. Uh, and right now, Democrats are, are hoping that, uh, that they will be running against Janelle Branchin, uh, because Janelle Branchin is one of the most extreme state representatives in the state, if not the country, when it comes mm. to, quote unquote, election integrity issues. She has uh, she wrote in the immediate aftermath of the election that that the that the election should be overturned. Uh, she, you know, visited with uh, the the groups in Arizona that were trying to overturn the election. Uh, they, the leadership in Wisconsin made her the head of the elections committee, the assembly's elections committee. She held all sorts of crazy hearings uh, about conspiracy theories related to the election. She's gone so far, in fact, that the far right leadership uh, in the Wisconsin State Assembly has kicked her out of the caucus uh, so that she, she is too extreme for the extreme members of the uh, of the Wisconsin State Assembly, folks like Robin Voss, uh, who are already pretty far to the right, pretty, pretty uh, extreme on measures of democracy themselves, and, and she is too extreme for them. Uh, so I think, you know, Democrats want to be running against her. You know, I think it is a gamble. Because it is a, you know, it's a district that has been represented by a Republican uh, for 30 years. And so, you know, it's a gamble to, uh, to you know, elevate this uh, uh, candidate in the primary. We've seen Democrats use this strategy to some success uh, in the past, you know, most recently with the midterms. Uh, and I think, you know, that, uh, that you know, she would, she would represent the Democrats' best chance of, of winning the election. Uh, and kind of pulling off this upset in a Republican district. Well, that's frightening. Um, but again, everything's at stake. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if the if the Republicans are get able to get to that two third supermajority threshold, that unlocks what what uh, some of the Republicans in the legislature have characterized it as, as a quote unquote new power. Uh, which would give them some some ways to, you know, kind of impeach the governor or other um, statewide elected officials. And, you know, he, he always expect the worst uh, when it comes to the type of type of chicanery that the leadership in the Wisconsin state Le- Republican leadership in the Wisconsin state legislature could employ. So uh, that is an extremely important race. And it's a race in, you know, the type of district that has been trending towards Democrats in recent election cycles. You know, I wrote about this. This is a this is a district that voted almost 70 percent for Scott Walker 
uh, in uh, 2010 or 2012 when he was uh, when he was first winning elections in the state. Uh, but last year, in the gubernatorial election, uh, Tim Michaels just barely got over 50 percent of the vote, about 52 percent of the vote. So in a lower turnout uh, spring election, um, you know, there is there is it stands to reason that these trends could continue. Uh, and with all the all the focus uh, that the that the Democrats have had with the state Supreme Court election um, and kind of flipping a lot of these, uh, you know, more highly educated suburban voters that have been, you know, kind of gravitating towards Democrats during the Trump era. It, there's a real chance for them to pull off an upset here. And I think, you know, there's there's opportunity to to flip the court. There's opportunity to to win this special election and, and deliver a real blow. Uh, to the Republicans in Wisconsin. Boy, from as they say, from your mouth to the divine ear, because that would be lovely. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about a different story. Um, you wrote a piece um, that appeared on the Heartland Signal website about something that happened in a town I've never heard of, Kiel. And I, I just I read it, and I thought it was fascinating, fascinating. Can you just, would you take a minute and walk us through that wonderful, interesting story? Yeah, this is one that I've been, I've been following for a while. There's been a ton of really great on the ground reporting that has been done by Wisconsin Watch, uh, a, a nonprofit journalism uh, organization that, uh, that is, it used to be called the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism. And kind of what, what happened here was that there was a an announcement of a Title IX investigation at Keele Middle School. Keele is a small town, uh, about a 4,000-person population city uh, in uh, kind of the uh, eastern part of this, a rural eastern part of the state, um, and it, it kind of in between, you know, Green Bay and Milwaukee. And... Uh, when, it, when this investigation was announced, uh, right-wing organizations uh, called the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, uh, which is a, a, a group that is constantly filing ridiculous lawsuits, not only in Wisconsin, but but all across the country. Uh, and they made it a, they kind of ran with a false narrative about the reason for this Title IX investigation. Uh, the, the narrative that they sold to conservative media and they pushed to the likes of Fox News and Newsmax and talk radio and the Wall Street Journal opinion page, they said that this investigation was being conducted uh, because a middle schooler was misgendered. So it was a middle school, a, a transgender student who uses they, them pronouns, uh, and a group of boys were calling them by the incorrect pronouns. Uh, so they sold it to the media that, you know, that, 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 the powers that be were investigating uh, over, you know, a single instance of, of misgendering a student. Uh, and we learned through the reporting from Wisconsin Watch that this was not the case, uh, that there was, uh, you know, weeks of harassment uh, and other instances. You know, there was there was a, a story about how, you know, these these boys were bullying this transgender student, throwing food at them. Uh, at the lunch table, so it was much more than just one instance. But the, the you know the the narrative that they sold to conservative media uh, was much different than that, and that brought a that really spiraled out of control. The story blew up. Um, you know, uh, parents uh, were frightened. Uh, there were death threats and bomb threats and cancellations uh, of the they canceled in person school for the final weeks 
uh, of the school. They canceled their Memorial Day parade. Uh, there were all sorts of chaotic uh, things happening in Keel once conservative media um, got a hold of it. And, um, and, and eventually what happened uh, was that, you know, things eventually cooled down. Um, you know, the, the, the anti-trans panic that they whipped up um, you know, clearly went too far. Uh, but most recently, and in uh, the reporting from Mario Corrin from Wisconsin Watch, uh, he went up there to visit a Keel school board meeting, and some of the far-right groups that, that had whipped up this panic uh, were trying to fire the superintendent um, over some, you know, just the, the type of uh, narrative that we're seeing across the country with a lot of these right-wing groups. There were had problems with books that, you know, taught about racial equity and LGBTQ rights and, you know, all these CRT type of freakouts. And, and what happened in this instance was instead of, you know, this becoming the latest chapter in, you know, um, uh, conservatives using those using these kind of panics to, to overtake a school board, is that citizens finally stood up and, and said that, you know, they, they kind of had enough. And they stood up and dozens of people spoke in favor of the superintendent. And what happened in, instead of the superintendent getting fired by these far-right school board members, the far-right school board members ended up resigning on the spot. And, and, and uh, so it's kind of an instance of, you know, the real-life consequences of fueling that out-of-control culture war uh, and the backlash uh, that, that is coming. And this is, again, this is a very conservative part of the state. You know, this is a this is a small this is small town, uh, semi rural Wisconsin, uh, where it's like about a forty five minute drive to a to a you know a town that has thirty forty thousand people. Um, so it's you know the the type of place that you would expect to uh, be you know aligned with uh, a lot of these conservative interests. And I think I think they recognized you know it got too real and they really pushed back. And I think that is it's a really telling story uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, the Republican Party was a conservative party. Then it became an angry, crazy party. And I think what, what that story told me was that not all of the conservatives have any patience for the angry, crazy anymore, that they pushed too far, and they would rather have issues that matter to their lives be ones that people talk about. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I still think people are decent. They just you know, common sense and, and fairness are going to win when you can, when you can dial down the hysteria and have a minute to think. And this is just such a um, lovely story, really lovely story of people whose politics I don't share. Right. But just saying enough of the, of the just freak show, let's just get on with our lives and, and, and educate our kids. Yeah, one of the one of the parents quoted in the uh, in the story in Wisconsin Walk said, and I'll quote him here. It says, "I can say without hesitation that I am one of many who would have remained quiet if these extremists hadn't started spewing defamatory filth against our teachers and librarians." It, it, right? It's just a clear case yeah. of them taking this panic way too far, and it taking Which the they always do way too far, and people just saying enough. Yeah, they they always do. They can't they can't resist the bait. Right. Oh, my gosh. Here's a chance to show that somebody's different than we are and go for it. It's with full. I mean, earlier in the show, I was talking to somebody from Florida. And, you know, I mean, it, it just sounds absolutely terrifying to me what's going on down there. At, at least here, at least in Wisconsin, the good people, the people whose politics are very different than most of the listeners to this show 
um, have said enough. And I want to give him credit for it. And I just, I love the story. And I really appreciated that you took the time to write about it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to recognize that when, you know, when these right wing organizations, you know, file these lawsuits, create these panics, I think it's important for those of us in the media to take a beat and, and really consider what their message might really, it might actually entail if they're selling an incomplete narrative, because in this case, the the people, you know, the lawyer who was pushing this admitted on the record to a member of the media that they sold a false narrative to conservative media to, to create this panic. And I think we have to, you know, those of us who are try to be more responsible members of the media need to need to take note of that. Yeah. Well, um, you did take note of it and I really appreciate it. I also, um, I, Dan, I really appreciate, you know, again, this was late notice. I called you after I learned about the big dark money flowing into the uh, Supreme Court race. And that was just like yesterday evening. I really appreciate your willing to willingness to share some of your Saturday with me like this. I really appreciate you having me on. It's always good to talk to you. Yep. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. That was Dan Schaefer. You've heard him here a, a bunch. He really knows Wisconsin, and you can follow his work at the Recombobulation area uh, on Substack. You can read it uh, on the WCPT uh, website. We're going to take a break, and when I come back, 773-763-9278, I want to hear from you. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and I'm going to take your calls at 773-763-9278. Listen, while we were on the air, I've got news. You may have heard it um, if you tuned away for a minute. That uh, former President Jimmy Carter has opted to forego any further medical treatments and to enter hospice care at home with his you know, beloved Rosalind for the remainder of his life. Um, uh, and what a remarkable life. I mean, whatever you think of his presidency, um, um, I, you know, certainly everyone agrees no one has had a post-presidency as remarkable, as um, honest, as dedicated to continually uh, improve our country uh, as Jimmy Carter, um, really a remarkable man, remarkable uh, left. I mean, of course, not over yet, but um, home in hospice care. And I know I'm thinking of him, and I'm sure many of you are as well. Okay, I'm going to uh, turn to the phone lines, 773-763-9278. Um, and we can talk about whatever's on your mind. So let's... Um, uh, start with Jim. Hi, Edwin. Yeah, I was just talking about something completely different. When I heard the announcement of Carter's, the announcement, I, I just it flooded back to me. I was in an affluent suburb at, in college, and that morning that he won, the teacher asked, who voted for Jimmy Carter? And I was the only one that raised my hand. And she said, well, why did you vote for him? <clears throat> and I said, for national health insurance. And I uh, I campaigned vigorously for him against Reagan. And you heard his last comments, you know, uh, interviews. 
he was always on the subject of oligarchy, how American oligarchy was ruining the politics in the United States, that the democratic process was being destroyed with money. It was destroyed by money. He pulled no punches about it. And uh, all I can say is the Irish say, maybe in heaven 10 minutes before the devil knows he's dead. And you have a great weekend, gentlemen. Take care. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Um, Paul, welcome. Uh, yes, everyone. Hi. I I want to talk about the shooting at Michigan State University, of which I am a proud alumnus, and I spent over a decade there in the 70s and 80s as both a graduate and undergraduate student. Uh, it was a place that changed my life. Before that, I was a traveling rock and roll musician. I had no interest in academics or anything like that at all. Um, Didn't know that. What's your instrument? I played a bunch of instruments, but as a, I played keyboards and electric guitar when I was out on the road. That's what I did, and I was uh, I was originally trained at the Detroit Conservatory of Music back in the early seventies. I was a, I studied uh, piano as my major instrument and music theory and composition. That was I had no interest in anything other than music and. Uh, it's you and I are going to have a separate conversation I, about that someday, because I also am a pianist. Yeah, and I, yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, yeah. But the right, so within, let's turn. To, let, yeah, yep. yeah, within while the shooting was still in in action, a Michigan a Republican Michigan state legislator posted a pro NRA video on Facebook, and then within hours. I, I call it the, the top half dozen, top six Republican talking points, which are, um, you know, it starts with it's too early to talk about guns when people are still grieving. Um, you know, uh, what's the other one? Democrats just want to politicize tragedy. This is all mental illness. Uh, you know, you know what they are. And, but the two, those are distractions. Um the two functional ones are no new laws, gun laws would have stopped this tragedy. And the last one is because we just need to enforce the laws that we have on the books now. And why these are the two big distract, uh, big, big lies is, and then they go on to say that uh, this guy was, you know, he should have been in jail. He was out on probation but some liberal prosecutor didn't, uh, and we just need to enforce the gun laws we have on the books. Well, you see, this is when you get down to gun laws that we're not enforcing our laws. The fact is 95% of all criminal referrals to the courts never go to trial. Matter of fact, so our system is about plea bargaining. We only, our courts are slammed trying 5% of the criminal cases. So, our system is designed around plea bargains. So to say that we're not enforcing the law and that's why no new gun laws would help is, well, it's essentially intellectually dishonest because all, all crimes are, are referred for plea bargain. They all, except for 5%, we only prosecute the most likely convictions for the worst of the offenders. 
And this particular man, uh, Mr. Anthony McRae, was a one-time offender for, uh, had no previous record, a one-time offender for uh, concealed carry without a permit. Uh, uh, seemingly, and he was not belligerent or obnoxious with the officer when he was arrested for it's a felony charge. It was pled down to a misdemeanor with probation. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the new law problem. Apparently in Michigan, uh, when you're on criminal probation, it's, and you're, and you're not supposed to be possessing a firearm in terms of your probation, are you are prohibited from possessing a firearm. There's no law in Michigan that prevents you from purchasing one. I think there's a new law there. I think there's a new law that could help. Oh boy. Are you right? Yep. Yeah. No kidding. And here's another one. I'm for, I want to make this clear. I am for not necessarily more criminal laws because they will be in the same backlog as the other criminal laws. They will be pled down. But here's what I want is I want civil liabilities. Yeah. You want to problem with this. It's not, it's not mental, it's not mental illness. Here's what, if you look at all the shootings, many, many, many of them, it's not mental illness as much as as dysfunctional, wacky families that are, that are providing or enabling access to guns for people who shouldn't have them. And it it was a son of a gun as the facts come out, son of a gun, I say, it was in this case too. This guy was not supposed to have a gun. He lived with his father. And he had a gun. The neighbor said he'd been shooting a gun in the backyard. Well, if the neighbors knew about it, his father knew about it, which means his father, in his father's house, his father was sheltering a probatee whom he knew was in violation of his probation. And that's the same as sheltering a criminal, because at that moment when he's in violation, he is a criminal, and he would have you're gone right, directly. Paul, but, you're, but you're not looking for criminal liability. You're looking for civil liability. We had that case exactly. in Highland Park with this terrible shooting in Highland Park on the 4th of July. And this past week, yep. the father was charged. But that's not a civil charge. Right. And see, what happens with that is it is and. If, but the thing is, is that is that kind of a charge will be in the same backlog of the 95 percent of the, that are plead down when you, you and the other problem is that when it's that you have to notice the victims of gun violence have no legal standing. They have no redress. There's no place they can go. Now, I'm saying that this man, if this man knew that right, he was but dealing, many of them are just he, dead. Yes. But the people that are shot are tainted for life. They're injured for life. I'm sorry. It's not like TV where you get shot, and if you're wounded, you just get up and carry on. Yeah, yeah, the the ones who survive. Yep, yep. Yeah, and the thing is, I'm saying, is that if people knew that they – we should handle this just like drug forfeitures. If this guy's father knew that he was dealing drugs out of his house, he'd know that I could lose my house and I could lose everything. He wouldn't allow him to it's It's a very good idea, Paul. A very very good idea. Uh, that that will prevent the, what we need to do is hold liabilities and the sale. Who sold them the gun? We should have civil liabilities that also could become criminal if you sell somebody a gun and you haven't made sure that they are 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 not on probation or some other way not supposed to have one. It's on the seller too. And if that results in a shooting or a murder, that could become criminal too. But certainly should be civil liabilities. It will cost you money if you if you allow, provide, or enable access to a gun for somebody who shouldn't have them. It could cost you a lot of money, and I think that will tighten things up, as it did honestly with alcohol. I mean, when I was a kid, maybe when you were a kid, it, it was nothing to go down and stand outside a 
a beer store, a party store, and in 10, 15 minutes, somebody would buy alcohol, but not anymore. A little, little harder to get alcohol right. underage now. Yep. All right. Well, yeah. thank you. As always, very interesting sure. call. Really appreciate it. All right, you guys, 773-763-9278. I want to hear from you. Joanne, what's on your mind? Yes. Thank you for taking my call. I have two questions, Edwin. Number one, why did you say Governor Governor DeSantis is against AP courses in the state of Florida? Uh, he's been he's in the middle of a fight with the AP or as an organization. He he banned the use of one of their courses on uh, African American history until they changed right. it. You and said all AP courses, and I'm like, right, right, right now he's well. Right now he's having that discussion with them about whether they will be allowed to be in the state. So it's you know um, he's using the power of his government um, to threaten and cajole and maybe to ban them entirely from the state um, until he can force them to his will. Um, to versions of history and other topics that uh, uh, matches politics. So it's um, that's why I yeah, said it. I believe, I believe the battle he's in is specifically about an, an AP course related to African-American history. I that's haven't where it started. Read I think it's gotten bigger. Well, I, I try to stay up, up to as far as what this issue goes, and I haven't read anything beyond that particular course. And specifically, from what I've read, it was relating to the facts of queer theory, um, CRT issues, um, and um, the things of that nature that he wanted to be taken out of the AP course. Because quite honestly, what does queer theory have to do with African-American history? Yeah, okay, so that. Fair question. That's where it began. And um, I, I want, I'm not sure it was queer theory, but there are, it turns out that there are uh, um, gay folks in, uh, uh, who are black in America and have their own story to tell. So when somebody wanted to write a course of the full history and experience of black Americans, it included it included some things that aren't just the mainstream of black American uh, history. And that, of course, uh, set off all those alarm bells. So he said that can't be in here. Somehow that's that the that the experience of queer blacks is not relevant to the experience of regular blacks or black history. You can argue that. I disagree with them. I think you tell a full story and people make up their mind. But he is feuding with them. Um, uh, at least I will double check this too. And if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll let you know next week. But my understanding was um, that he, he has widened his look at the AP in Florida. Um, so, so we'll, I, I will take another look to make sure my sources to uh, double check that because you haven't seen it and I yeah. did see it, but I'll, uh, you know, I will double check. I, I don't want to bring you stuff that isn't certain. Um, My, I'm pretty sure your guest has qualified that a little bit as well. So that again made me question, you know, why yeah, you made that statement. You might, you might be right, and I, and I, if I am uh, mistaken, I will certainly correct it. Um, okay. um, but as he's made the pitch across the state, 
that, yeah. that AP courses aren't worth the trouble. And that, that was well, his. That doesn't really make sense. I mean, whether he's right or left, I, I can't imagine any any governor wanting to cancel AP classes throughout the state. I mean, based on what? So that would be a pretty far stretch for someone to, to put that narrative together because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But as far as incorporating it queer, was a, it was a look. My source was a Daily Beast column. Um, oh God! So I will no, double yeah. check. I'll double check it to see if there's another source yeah. that goes with yeah. it, right? But there, but yeah. that's the source that that ran the story, and there are mm-hmm. quotes from him in it. Um, but again, I will I will go back and see if there are other sources, and I'll let you know next week. All right, sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. you bet. Thank you for listening. All right, um, let's see, uh, George, you're next. Hello, Edwin. Thanks for taking my call. Um, of course. Or yet my the point I, I called about um, when it comes to gun people, whenever I'm talking to some guy who says, well, we're not even enforcing the laws we have now. And I go, yeah, there's a reason for it. If you want to enforce all the gun laws we have now to their fullest extent, we've got to hire a lot more people to be agents and officers and support staff and buy a lot of equipment and do records checks and yada, yada, yada. That costs money. Are you willing to pay more taxes to make sure the laws are enforced? Well, of course, they never are. And it boils down to that whatever they say, there's three reasons that they say what they say. They want their guns, they need their guns, and they got to have their guns. Guns, guns, guns. They're nothing without their guns. And, you know, they're impossible to talk to. Well, forgive me, they're nothing with their guns either. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I saw something really curious today that I don't think I've ever seen in the Chicago area before. Um, I've been involved in politics on and off over the years, been a volunteer and a precinct captain. And I don't know what this means, but I drove through an unincorporated area today, and I saw several front lawn signs for Paul's Alice. Now, I know that cops and firefighters who are city of Chicago, they have to live in the city, but other city workers don't. Am I correct in that? City workers and, are supposed to live in the city, but yeah. Interesting. Okay, because I've never seen signs for a candidate for mayor of Chicago uh, in front of people's houses outside the city before. And it just, I, I had to go around the block and look again to believe my eyes. It's like, well, maybe they have relatives who live in the city. They can volunteer and write checks even if they can't vote. I, you know, who knows? I, I, um, I and I'm, I've, I've been clear with everybody listening to the show. I actually have a candidate in this race. I've, I'm helping one of the candidates. So I don't spend my time on this show talking about Chicago's mayor's race um, because I don't think that's fair. You know, you guys don't tune in to hear, hear me and, uh, about a candidate that I'm supporting in the mayor's race. So I, in fairness to everybody, I've stayed clear of it and stayed on these national issues. But it is certainly true. Look, I wish the people who didn't live in Chicago more generally understood what a stake they have in the success of our city. Right. Because it, the, the region has to work together and the engine of that economy is in the city of Chicago. So I'm glad people think they have a stake in it, um, regardless of who they're supporting. Um, and, you know, there's a, there has always been a lot of slippage 
on the rules of living in the city for sure. Um, even though it's a rule, um, it has not, uh, let's just say it's enforcement, um, is continuous because we always find people who, who aren't living in the city, who work in the city. Can I make one more quick comment when it comes to the issue of, uh, fathers covering for their wayward sons to make sure they get to own guns. I'm glad that the father of the Highland Park shooter has been arrested uh, because he, he got his son permission to get a gun. And yeah, it really shook terrible. me up that whole thing, not only because of the, the intrinsic horror of the incident, but for a number of years, my job took me to Highland Park on a regular basis. And I stopped for a sandwich or a drink at the two convenience stores that gentleman owned more times mm-hmm. than I can count. And I'm sure I was served by his son at some point. You know, yeah. you never know who's around you and who has a gun and what it'll take to set him off, you know? Well, it's terrible um, what happened there. And, uh, you know, justice is slow. Um, he's going to he's going to go to court. Um uh, it's taking a long time, but even Donald Trump is going to go to court. I'm quite certain of it. Um, but justice is slow is one problem. The problem we have with guns is another one. And it's, it's, I don't, I don't, you know, the carnage in America is a obscenity. It's a tragedy. It's, um, it, it puts us so out of step with every other civilized nation in the world. Um, I, at some point, we're going to have to deal with it. I don't know what that point is, but I hope it's soon. Thank you, George. Really appreciate it. Thank you for taking my call. Appreciate it, Edwin. Of course. Earl, you're next. Hey, buddy. Happy day. Happy day. Spring is coming Thank sooner you. or later. Yeah, I, I love hope sooner than later. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I am calling today, Edward, just to disagree with you. I know there have been great strides by some blacks in this community and in America, and uh, I don't want to come off as saying that all that has been done of reason is all bad for black folks. Uh, But I have to look at it historically and through my eyes and through my experiences. And after 400 years of persecution um, and disrespect and illegitimacy, I don't hold the same uh, values that you have as far as all people are basically good and that this all will come about. And the reason why I'm going to say that in our society, we've had institutions that have been set up and people have put up these boogeymen that that need to be knocked down and villainized and uh, made targets of and uh, for people's plight in the world. Instead of looking at necessarily uh, what's going on at the corporate level, the corporate media, the corporate institution, and the corporate men and women like to diverge their uh, attacks and uh, focus them on people on the bottom and indicate that, you know, the people on the bottom are the problem of America, not 
necessarily that they are taking too much wealth out of the mainstream media to help America grow and be a more equitable society. But I'm just saying that every time you turn around, uh, black folks are gay people. Uh, for a while there, it was Muslims um, that have to be used and set up as targets to distract uh, from what's going on. And recently, you know, we've been talking about, I'm going to get off in a second, but recently we've been talking about Fox News. They knew that they'd been lying to their listeners. It was the conscious uh, attack. And they needed to lie to them to hold their their, uh, share in the media, you know, so they could generate money and everybody remains getting that big, that checks and uh, same thing sort of like with every large entity you know uh, there's a certain amount of line that you know that went on with the tobacco industry and we can go on down the line uh, industries when, and people will lie to us and just keep making money and yep. have a, a cash system go ahead I'm, I'll let you respond well, no. Well, so Earl, I, you and I, I don't think we disagree as much as, as you think. I, I think um, I, I am an optimist, but I'm not crazy. And I know that, um, you know, I think you've heard me talk about how wages and, uh, and the growth of the American economy grew together from World War II until about 1972, right? Now, they, they stopped yes. after that. And now what's interesting about that is something else happened. It's, I don't think it's related, but it's something else happened at the same time. That's right at the, at the beginning, at the end, really, of the great period of civil rights in America. So the moment that laws changed that allowed black Americans much more access to everything in America, including the vote, our economy then said, yeah, but you know what? We're going to decouple it so people on the bottom no longer share in the growth in the country, right? So the moment that it would have mattered for a vast number of black Americans, the rules changed. Boy, do I get that. I mean, and, and when you think of the time before it, that whole growth after World War II, much of the growth of wealth in this country came from homeowning, and yet the federal government would not, the FHA would not give mortgages to black families. So the, the, uh, and of course, you and I are having a conversation that's apparently illegal to have in Florida now because the governor of Florida doesn't want this history taught. So I, you and I are in agreement about a lot of this stuff. Um, on, the, on the other hand, every day I see people fighting it. I see people, young people of every color, getting together to fight this in a way that I haven't seen in a long time, and that gives me hope. All right. I agree with you that they're fighting, but somehow or another, my generation of white folks uh, have now accumulated a certain amount of wealth, and I think they're turning their back somewhat uh, on opportunities and stuff. They're holding on to what they have, so they have their security, and uh, they're not necessarily in the fight. So... All right, well, that's going to be the last word for this week because uh, we've run out of time. All right, everybody, um, I will be back with you next week, and I will uh, uh, tell you what I really think uh, about Ron DeSantis and the AP and everything else. Stay uh, 
safe this week and see you next week. Bye.